Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You sit down with a panel of chimpanzees and a bucket of crack and come up with that one? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, you thought you could take shots at Sam Harris from a safe distance. Now it's time to pay the piper. Are you scared? <laughs> I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I think this is what we call projection. Um, you know, Sam, Sam and I have studied psychology, so we know what's going on. But, uh, you know... We're just glad that we have Sam Harris on today for, you know, tit for tat, I believe, the evolutionary biologists call it. Yeah, welcome to the show, Sam. Uh, oh, thank, thank you. you for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure to be repeatedly vilified by you, and, and uh, now it's, it's <laughs> great to get the treatment in person. Well, speaking of that, uh, we have taken a few jabs at you over the course of our, what, 58 episodes. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to give you, just from the outset, a chance to get a little of your own back at us. Mm-hmm. So if you have anything you want to just get off your chest right now, this is your chance. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I actually, uh, uh, I think I'm probably going to disappoint you here. I mean, I, I love the show and it's, I've always uh, found myself when I discover you, uh, misrepresenting my views or saying something snide about me in the the inconvenient position of having basically loved everything you've said up until that moment and then having to sort of course correct emotionally uh so it's uh you know you know i think we should just do this in real time and if you say anything that i I think is uh off the mark i will i won't be shy about telling you but uh you know i love what you guys do on the show i think you're it's uh, hilarious and um fascinating and uh, well worth uh, recommending to people and that's that's why i i do recommend it yeah, thanks yeah. a lot sam and and uh <laughs> you have been a good sport and in, in the sense that i just sam i think wrote us one email after an episode uh where we had been talking about i think that religion documentary yeah the stride the stride with which I, we read that email eventually, but um, but I thought it was hilarious, and, and I could tell at the very least there was no hatred, um, or, or your meditative practice had had really <laughs> it really yeah, kicked. you're not lying about the meditating, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or or I've been lobotomized and just uh, don't notice when I'm being abused. Uh, actually, well, if hoping- you want to pick up on that one point, I mean, the only you know, I think we we should probably just get into matters of greater philosophical interest but if you if you did want to talk about that i, I just think the uh if i remember correctly the, the problem i had was that tamler was talking about um the efforts of the new atheists me and and uh, dawkins and i believe uh, hitchens in particular 
uh, as being essentially a fool's errand and and a somewhat obnoxious one, where we're we're saying offensive things that that run counter to the the sensibilities and beliefs of a majority of humanity, and we're almost by definition doing this to no avail. That we're we're no one's no one's going to have their mind changed. By being told that they're an idiot from you know by the likes of me or or Richard or or Hitch and but the truth is that's just not true. You're not seeing the evidence that we have of people's minds being changed. I mean, whatever you think about our tone or the the seemliness of telling people they're wrong on on these these points or at least have unwarranted beliefs. Um, whatever their emotional consolations, the the truth is, and I think I said this in the in the email uh, daily, and and now by the uh, I'm not exaggerating, tens of thousands. I've received emails from people who either through reading one of our books or hearing a debate or engaging some process of reasoning uh, in another context, they've come out of. Uh, even the most committed kind of fundamentalism and now see the world with new eyes and are actually grateful to have, have lost their dogmatism and superstition and fears of hell and all the rest. And I mean, this, this has taken forms that I really couldn't have imagined before I st- started hearing from these people, including, you know, hearing from ministers who are still in the pulpit. And, and this is now, you know, by the, the tens and even hundreds, I think there are some hundreds in, 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 um, uh, associated with with what's now called the clergy project online, where you have peop- ministers who are still in the closet because they can't figure out what else to do with their lives, and if they reveal their their atheism now, they're going to be out of a job. But but people who who are just in hiding in their own communities, uh, convinced that they're going to lose everyone they they love uh, if they um, reveal uh, what they actually believe about the nature of reality. Now, it's not true that that. Presenting a counter argument, no matter how strident and annoying, uh, doesn't work. And in fact, it, it does work. And and this 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 homily that people are walking around with that what people you can't reason someone out of something he wasn't reasoned into. That's just not true. Uh, me, can I just step in really quickly and offer an uh, an apology here that. Um People sometimes expect Tamler to be sensitive to empirical evidence of any sort. <laughs> First of all, I can relate to those pastors because I feel like that myself sometimes. Like <laughs> I'm a philosopher, but I don't believe in philosophy anymore. Right. The apology I want to make is is lumping you in with what I thought my real target was, and I don't remember to what extent I lumped you in with it, but. What I thought my real target was was Dawkins, um, who, uh, an author that I couldn't have more respect for. And I find him on religion to be less than effective, at least in diagnosing the problems with it. And that's just because of my experience with religious people. In my experience, the religious people I come across have a sophistication and a that Dawkins in particular, doesn't attribute to them. And again, I I haven't even read your work on this. I've read your work on other stuff. You know, if I ever lumped you in, it's just because you're one of the four horsemen or whatever, not out of any intimate knowledge with your views on religion. And well, he's, and even your your tone on religion. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you'll you would be uh, 
pleasantly uh, unsurprised or unpleasantly surprised, as, as the case may be, because I, I would commit some of the same errors you you th- you think you detect in in Dawkins uh, on this point. Uh, I mean, it's true that that he and I don't totally align in uh, in our views or on religion or our, our treatment of it, but. On, on many of these points, we are convicted of the same lack of nuance by so-called sophisticated uh, you know, religious moderates or liberals or, or uh, reformists of some kind. And it's just that's, that's sort of losing the plot in, in terms of dealing with our arguments. It's not, I, I, we're not saying that such sophisticated hair-splitting and, and equivocation isn't possible or even well subscribed in the religious community. It's just we're we're dealing with the, uh, for the most part, we're dealing with the problem in its purest form, and we're we're dealing with with fundamentalists uh, in broad strokes a lot of the time. So we're, you know, you know, we'll write we'll write something about you know, how unseemly it is that tens of millions of Americans believe in the, the literal resurrection of Jesus and his imminent return and the the, the, the coming rapture, etc. So now, obviously, not every Christian believes these things uh, literally or believes every one of those things literally, but something like half of Americans do, or at least claim to. And so the, and we can no, also that- talk honestly about the, the, the delta between professed belief and actual belief. But even if you account for that, you're still talking about tens of millions of people who have a real influence on politics, etc. And I would also just say in, in Richard's defense, I know he can point to the same deluge of communication by email uh, from people who have been persuaded by his heavy-handed treatment of of uh, religion. So it's, a, it's the, the, the persuadable people are out there uh, and I totally yeah. believe that. I, I, well, I, and you know, my hats off to you guys for for that part of it. And 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 I'll just say that you know, I teach in Houston, right? So I have a lot of religious students, and I teach a great books course, and we do a lot of religious texts. It's not that they don't believe, say, in the literal resurrection of Jesus. They do believe that, or at least I remember being sort of surprised that like. You know, out of my 14 students, eight of them or something believed when I asked. I just asked them flat out. And yet they're still able to have very nuanced and intelligent and critical discussions of Genesis and Matthew and Romans, etc. So I guess that's the part that I sometimes wish I saw but, more of is, uh, you know, that, that that you can believe something that we all clearly believe to be false and still be a good person that can offer a valuable perspective about things that we all care about. So right. can, well, just to jump in here, I mean, this, this is, this is, was actually what we ended up discussing, I think in that follow-up episode, because <clears throat> I also thought Tamler, uh, greatly underestimated the degree to which many religious people aren't like that reason and nuance. And you're even in, even there are a couple of things, even your students in class who, who may uh, adhere to these uh, fairly strict religious beliefs, they are the kind of people who are in college and who are, you know, at that time of their life where they're most open-minded. Moreover, they're in a classroom where, you know, you're the professor and they have to respect your views. 
Um, I this is when I challenged you to spend to spend a month in a sort of a Christian fundamentalist uh, community because I think that you should do that as penance, Tamler. Yeah, the the, um, <laughs> the amount because you know I never took Richard Dawkins or Sam to be saying that there are no such thing as as, as people who might be reasonable human beings who are religious, but rather the fear is that the so many people who are religious or capable because of of this sort of voracious energy and denial of anything that is that goes counter to those core beliefs right in in a way that these aren't people that you and probably I encounter in in our everyday lives yeah, well, well well there's that so t- two sides of the uh, this concern one is that you're you're ignoring just how extreme some of these beliefs are, even in otherwise well-behaved people who, who may even be your students. So there, there are people who um, really have been terrorized by their parents and, will, and uh, people who terrorize their kids with a fear of hell, for instance. You know, I hear, about, I hear from people who they're, right. enti- they're, they're in their 40s and they're only now just coming out of the, the prison of having spent their entire lives being afraid of, of being tortured in eternity by Satan. Uh, you know, this is in the 21st century in the United States. Um, and these people are convinced, they're, they're, these, are, you know, these are the only ones I hear from, but these are people who are convinced by our arguments against uh, their, the beliefs that were drummed into them on Mother's Knee, but they still feel, they're still afraid of burning for eternity in hell. Um, so there's that side and all of, you know, there's the, the homophobia and all of the other social issues of intolerance that, that we're well aware of, but again, are just immensely uh, influential in even our society and to say nothing of what's going on in the Muslim world. But then the other side of it is, is these so-called sophisticated, nuanced people, when you actually press for nuance and, and intellectual honesty in the domain of their religious convictions, you really just you just land in uh, an area of of uh, kind of unprincipled rule changes in in intellectual discourse. I mean, these, these are not the nuanced positions for the most part are bullshit. Now, this is not to say that people don't have great, I, great experiences that they want to capture in religious language, but when you look at someone like Francis Collins, who's running the NIH, who's a medical geneticist and obviously a very smart guy and made real contributions to science, but he's also a bit of a Bible thumper. He's an evangelical Christian. He believes in evolution, thankfully, but he also believes that immortal souls and free will were just downloaded onto the hard drive of only one species of primate at some, pl- at some point in history by an almighty God. And when you, but he thinks, I mean, and, and when you ask him about the resurrection, he believes in the resurrection and he believes in the coming resurrection of the dead. And he, I think, is sensitive to how unseemly it is for the head of the NIH to talk about these things. So when you ask him for details, he says, well, this is a, it's all very complicated and you should consult the work of John Polkinghorne and N.T. Wright. And when you consult their work, you get just pure madness. You, it's just a bizarre conflation. It's just a word salad, uh, which uh, is foisted on um, scientifically illiterate people by scientifically literate people for reasons that are patently emotional and that don't. They're actually totally unconstrained by any principles of intellectual honesty, and that. And I, I think we should be even more critical in some sense of someone like Francis Collins, the so-called nuanced uh, 
religious person. Let's use this because I have no sympathy with Francis Collins. I have sympathy with my, you know, with my students and with the people that I know who are not trying to put together a consistent account of the universe or a consist even a consistent set of beliefs and principles. And 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 let me use this as a bridge to talking about your new book. Tamler bef- can I interrupt really quickly because I'm afraid that we'll lose this particular um, point. Um, Sam, I'm sympathetic to you saying that as that, that the source of evidence that all of the work that you guys have done it are the sort of countless correspondence messages of people telling you. I mean, I, I grew up scared to death of Satan too. You know, if it does feel like being liberated from something. The the question is. I think at the heart, the heart of of Tamler's at least the sentiment he was trying to express is is not whether or not this has had a material effect, but the real comparison is the counterfactual world in which the message is spread with a little bit less hostility. Hitch and Dawkins sometimes just got mean, and what that did was potentially alienate some people who were right there, right. And who could have been convinced by the reasons. Yeah. Right? Well, so well, I think the claim is that it could be more people could even be, have been convinced if it weren't for sort of the insult. Well, I'll, I'll go you one better. I mean, it's, it's totally possible that that we're having a counterproductive, uh, just despite all of the, the obvious effects I'm seeing in my email, I'm not hearing from the people who have become even more religious when confronted right. with the offensive arguments of me and, and, and the other new atheists. Um, and so it's yeah we could we could be driving people into the into the arms of religion uh, you know, two for one every time we deconvert somebody they we, we convert <laughs> two more people that's 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 totally possible and I, I wouldn't I, expect to see the evidence of it. Uh, I almost fear that Tamler was almost there. He you was almost religious. made me religious. Yeah. <laughs> he was really really curious. He was like putting ads in Craigslist. Just Craig's my pure <laughs> like con- yeah. But I, I'll, I'll take I'll follow Tamler's bridge to my book and and say that I mean, w- one thing that's that's different about my criticism of religion than both uh, Hitch and, and Dawkins is is that I mean part of my ire uh, against religious dogmatism is born of my interest in and experience of the kinds of states of consciousness that are, really are the the baby in the bathwater of of religion. So in terms of um, uh, you know the kinds of experiences that that Jesus, whoever he was, seems to have been bearing witness to, or the Buddha, or other you know famous contemplatives. I've been interested in those experiences for decades, and have had many of them, and enjoyed them, and value them as uh, really central to my well-being and uh, of immense intellectual and, and personal interest. And I see the absolute non-necessity uh, of believing religious bullshit in, in, in order to, to access those experiences. In fact, all of the, the religious dogmatism that that religious people find so essential is a way of kind of missing the point. Uh, and so that so that it, this, rather than make me more apologetic and conciliatory in the face of relig- religious people's beliefs, it's, if anything, this makes me more impatient with the bad ideas that I see uh, th- th- so this was going to be my question because the other issue that I have is that I think you sometimes overestimate the degree to which religion is about belief 
and underestimate the degree to which religion is about practice. And what what, what struck me when I was reading your book is that you say flat out, I don't want you to take anything on faith. All I want you to do is try this. And you're talking about the meditative practice hmm. that you know, that, that, I, that, I, that I'm actually a fan of. It brought me back to when in my 20s, you know, I went through a little bit of a phase where I was meditating and my wife keeps saying she wants me to go back to, to that phase. Shit, so. I, would, I would sponsor that. <laughs> yeah, right? The challenge I'd raise is I have a whole slew of Orthodox Jewish relatives. Mm. I mean, you know, and they multiply by right now. I have three more than when we started this podcast. <laughs> you're and, so anti- for a Jew, you're so anti-Semitic. <laughs> no, it's just that they all have ten children each, and like I had my, you know, uh, because my dad just died, my uncle came, and he couldn't even keep track of, you know, how many each of his children had. <laughs> so, but I remember because I married a, a, a non-Jewish woman, and that put me in bad standing with a lot of them but i remember at the time they were saying almost the exact same thing to me look we're not asking you to believe anything all we want you to do is 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 be kosher live this life go to you know perform these rituals and we think you'll find the truth in our way of life just through the practice of it. They, they asked nothing of me when it came to belief. But, now, I, I wasn't going to do that because I'm not going to, you know, keep kosher and go to synagogue every Saturday and, you know, but still, it, but, but the message was strikingly similar to what I thought your message was in the, op- in the first part of the book. Well, I, I think that there are two important differences, at least two. One is that uh, well, first, let me just take your point that yes, religion is about more than or entails more than than mere propositional attitudes uh, that is beliefs. Uh, and so on the basis of of beliefs, um, people engage in a variety of behaviors which which make sense, really only make sense and or even are only interpretable in light of those beliefs, whether it's Going to mass, or eating the Eucharist, or or praying to Jesus, or or keeping kosher, or, or or you know whatever it is. The difference, however, is that the 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 basis for a practice can either be dogmatic and irrational, or uh, engaged very much in the spirit of a scientific hypothesis. So so to to get Orthodox Judaism off the ground. You have to the, the buy-in is is pretty steep. You have to believe certain things on on the basis of, of precious little evidence, uh, like you know the the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Torah is the, the actual word of the Creator. Why of the do universe. you say that you have to? Why do you have to do that? Well, you or you you have to fail to see how ridiculous the claim is on its face. So you have to you know, th- so so some circumcision circumcision is like the highest entry to a club ever right, invented. Right. Well, even that you know, as one who was circumcised and, yeah, and doesn't hasn't all... noticed the downside yet, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I can say that you know that you know I I didn't have to confront that problem. Although I'm very happy you right. know that not to have had had boys and you know had to confront that that weird issue exactly. among you know Jewish family members. So well, David f- female circumcised his daughter. <laughs> you you dare talk about my daughter, Mr. Culture of Honor. So it's it, mm-hmm. the, the buy-in for for Orthodox Judaism or really any of the Abrahamic religions is a a faith-based claim about the divine origin of certain books 
you know, that's that's at minimum you have to care about the Bible or the Quran uh, more than you care about the plays of Shakespeare and and attribute a uh, at least at least you have to be open minded about their non human authorship and and then when you start to pray you're praying to a God who you have to at least provisionally think exists and you you're in relationship to this invisible other who has may have infinite knowledge and infinite power and and a precarious hold on on his infinite benevolence uh, given all the the destruction you you're going to witness around you in the world there's a, there's a lot you have to believe in order to get that project started when you're talking about something like meditation of of the sort that I present in the book there's really nothing you have to believe except that it makes sense to pay close attention to the nature of conscious experience if you want to see what your conscious experience is like. So I'm telling you there are certain things you can notice about the nature of your own mind subjectively if you only pay attention. And the the, the cost uh, uh, to authenticate those claims is to pay attention. Now, it may not work for you, or you may, you may look and find something other than what I describe, uh, and that's that's fine, but that it, it can be it can be approached very much in the spirit of uh, uh, let's let's pay attention to this this thing and see if the claims can be cashed out. You can't pray to Jesus for the salvation of your soul uh, in that same frame of mind. You have to at least accept that you're in dialogue uh, with invisible other. Uh, now you could you could in a very provisional way say, well, I'm just going to pray and see what happens. You know, I'll, I've had Christians approach me. With this this offer, they say, "Well, you don't have to believe any of this. Just pray to Jesus, and He's going to change your heart. You know, you'll just see. You can be a total skeptic, but you just pray, and you'll see. I'm right. Well, okay, that that is a valid uh, experiment to run, and uh, I can say that I've run it, and it it hasn't worked. Uh, but it's not um, obviously it doesn't have the same kind of logic that that I'm articulating in my book, which is a very empirical approach to uh, authenticating some first-person claims about the the nature of of the human mind. Yeah, I guess, and I'm speaking only as Jews. And, l- and now let's speak about Jews, you know, who are conservative but still practicing. Taylor, before you yeah. before you go down that path, I just have to say one more thing that makes your view of this matter somewhat idiosyncratic and 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 therefore non generalizable to the whole project of combating religion and and, the, and it's your focus on Judaism because Judaism really is yeah. unique it's an exception it's an exception it, it's like you didn't listen to me at all the last episode we right. had this I mean it, you know right. we it really is the case that to be Christian is to believe in Christ now we got we got some emails last time I said that where people are like well that's not true I know you know I have this experience this spiritual experience and I'm part of the Christian church I don't necessarily need to believe in the literal but yeah but like the mere fact that you have to go and explain to me exactly what it means to be Christian and not believe in Christ it's a weird thing that is the the whole point of becoming Christian or submission to Islam is to take on this propositional belief Jesus is the savior right. uh, there's one god Allah and Muhammad is right. prophet and the minute you abandon that you are you may be able to have some sort of coherent spirituality that you work out in your mind but you are all of a sudden out of favor with most everybody else who claims that religion yeah. and Judaism yeah. I, as I've said before I'm I've been I've been jealous of it before um because it, you know I feel like you guys may not have had to go through the existential well I don't know Sam how you were raised but <clears throat> um the, well, I had to go through some sort of this 
existential angst at abandoning beliefs that everybody held to be true. And and to this day, you know, if I I don't even talk about it just because of the suffering that it might bring my relatives who will think that I will not gain eternal life but by dint of not believing. And that's not a cool thing to believe about your relative or your son. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but those are – I just want to point out those are two different responses. One is that Judaism is the exception and another is no, to embark on Jewish – practice or ritual you need to accept a certain level of de- uh, of belief which well, i thought was what sam was yeah, saying yeah. Oh, before well, let and, me let and, me reconcile that I, I mean yeah. that seems to be a contradiction it's not i mean so it's yeah most jews most jews that i meet and i think probably most jews in the world uh are uh impressively secular at this moment and uh and i would say uh, vast numbers of them are actually atheists, and yet they, uh, many of them, many of the, these people who who fit both criteria of secularism and atheism, still find that their Judaism is very important to them. They 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 love the buildings, they love the music, they love the food, they love the the holidays, they love the community, they love the practice, as you say, and they don't want to to give it up. And even some of these people are even rabbis, and some of these people aren't are are even conservative rabbis, and they're not they're not going to be orthodox rabbis because there I think the buy-in is is rather more explicit. But you know I've debated conservative rabbis who, when I have assumed some measure of religious you know supernatural conviction on their parts. They have pulled me up short, saying, "What? What are you talking about? I don't believe any of that." I mean, it's ex- explicit, explicitly, I was on stage with Shmuley. With, uh, with Shmuley, I don't know what Shmuley believes. He's he's uh, uh, in any I case. I think Dave was referring to Shmuley, like yeah, belief, he was saying Shmuley. like belief Shmuley. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, yeah. I debated um, Rabbi uh, David Wolpe a couple of times. And I believe he's identified as as a conservative rabbi. And at one point in in one of our debates, I said something. Which assumed tacitly that he believed in a God who can answer prayers, and he turned on me and said, "What? What makes you think I believe in a God who can answer prayers?" And I said, well, "Okay, okay. So, what the hell are we talking about here? I mean, are you a psychologist? What? You know, this is. I thought we were debating religion. Now, so it is true that 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 Jews, even conservative Jewish rabbis, can have religious beliefs that are so attenuated as to just barely." register by the the standards of Christianity and Islam but uh, that's just that is a peculiar feature of Judaism at the moment and and to say as David said that to say that you're a Christian a devout Christian but you don't believe in the resurrection you don't believe Jesus was the son of God you don't believe he was born of a virgin that is just an oxymoron I mean it's just not you, you can find some person who will cl- make those claims but he represents absolutely no one I mean other than himself you know, and right. the f- they will email us uh, yeah well you'll, you'll get those emails but I mean I get emails from people who believe in Poseidon you know literally whenever I say whenever I use the analogy that <laughs> we know that you know we, we're all atheists with respect to Poseidon it's <laughs> well how, how do you explain tidal waves then exactly right <laughs> Don't they realize Poseidon is just a state of mind? <laughs> Go to the sea and pray to Poseidon. That's all I'm asking. Just pray <laughs> yeah, to Poseidon. Just try it. You yeah. can do it. You can, you, you, you can run all of these experiments very, very quickly. And, and uh, Well, but no you can't, right? Like your experiment, you can't write, run very quickly. I can't meditate for 15 minutes and say, nope. 
didn't didn't lose the sense of self. This that, didn't work. Well, next, that's true. You know, but that, that's yeah. well. But you know, that that, but that Sam, is true. Sam makes it clear that what it would take to give a, a a real try so so i suppose that using the same kind of rules you would want to give both of those things an equal try like at some point sam you say you know after a couple of weeks you might actually find that your meditation is even worse but this is progress so but i did want to also point out that i think what sam the difference between what sam seems to be saying here in in waking up have we even said talked to the, about the title of the book this is your most recent book called waking up that Practices like the cultural practices of Judaism uh, don't require the sort of metaphysical, spiritual, or religious beliefs. They don't. They have to be part of a cultural context, or they just don't make sense. So, so my, so Dan Ariely is uh, atheist by all accounts, but he sort of doesn't. He doesn't eat pork just out of he likes the tradition. It makes him feel like part of his community. If you, what you want to do is boil down to the essence of what might be good. The 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 active ingredient of all religious experience it doesn't make sense to point to some of the practices that uh, that you can find in religions no matter how good they are because they are completely dependent even if you can separate them and have a religion that doesn't require this deep metaphysical belief it doesn't make that much sense for me to to go kosher unless it turns out that going kosher really does make a difference across everybody, no matter what they believe. Well, this is what's so that, tragic about religion. So, so even if we're going to accept that there are uh, very important uh, human uh, needs, really, I mean, they're, they're important by dint of being actual needs that can only be fulfilled by uh, kind of quasi-irrational commitments uh, and and pr- associated practices. So we need we need rituals, and we need rituals that we find so captivating that they really have to be cashed out by by irrational beliefs, you know, drummed into the minds of children. And we need we need other other commitments, dietary commitments, and and social institutions that uh, not only can't be justified rationally, but e- re- require some measure of bewilderment. Uh, in order to to erect and maintain, I'm not I'm not conceding that. But even if that were true, it would take us about five minutes to des- to design a religion that is orders of magnitude more benign and and useful uh, than any of the existing religions. Do you recognize any positive benefit that even a you know uh, we'll set aside Judaism since we seem to agree that they're could be some positive benefit that that brings. But let's talk about Christianity and people like Christian missionaries who, A, have felt a kind of calling to help others in a way that many secular people have not, and B, have felt a kind of beneficial purpose kind of meaningfulness that I, you know, it's not the kind of thing that I require to be happy, but, but, but that could just be be my particular temperament. Do you, do you, you're just happy, you're just happy by nature as everyone can tell. (laughs) Do you recognize that the, the possible benefits, because that's what this really is, right? A cost benefit analysis. And it's an empirical question to what extent the harms outweigh the benefits. Do you, do you recognize these benefits at all, even if they come Irrational beliefs. I, I don't. I don't yeah. think the. Um, I don't think what one does. I mean, my my argument here is that religion gives people bad reasons to be good, where good reasons are actually available. 
I mean, that's that's a, a line I've used now a hundred times, but it, it, enca- it encapsulates the problem for me that, that, yes, you can point to religious people doing uh, very good things in this world at great cost to themselves, but you can also point to people doing those same things for entirely secular reasons uh, or entirely rational and, and uh, ordinarily compassionate reasons, uh, and those reasons are better, and those reasons are, by by definition, don't come with the liabilities of divisive, irrational religious motives. So, for instance, you have you have Christian missionaries going to sub-Saharan Africa to alleviate a famine, and you know that's wonderful. They're they're putting their lives on the line. They're helping people. They're they're feeding people, but they're also doing divisive and dangerous things because. Part of their agenda, in fact, their main agenda, is to spread uh, the word of Jesus to area, you know, war-torn areas in in Africa that where Christian and Muslim violence has literally cost millions of lives. But you have secular people like you know the, the doctors who work with Doctors Without Borders who are doing the same thing for just purely because they they care about other human beings and they care about famine relief. And I would also argue that that it's actually more moral to have that motive. I mean, this is the, the question, uh, the rhetorical question I put to people, you know, which is more moral, going to Africa to help starving children because you, you sort of care about star- starving children, but you also really care about uh, getting into heaven after you die, uh, or going to Africa and doing the same thing because you just entirely and merely care about starving children. Well, I think the latter impulse is obviously the more moral and not to say uh more sane but it, it it's it, it's it's possible well, for the people motive. who are being aided they don't that doesn't really come well, into play i mean well, i know does. that's music to dave's kantian ears but no it does but. no 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 tamler it does <laughs> that, because there, there are cases where christian missionaries won't even give out the food until people convert to Christianity. Right, okay. Or I mean, sure, there's, there's, sure, sure, sure. And then and then they'll preach. I just mean, oh, wait, wait, I just wait, mean no, you, on the question of whether it's more moral or less moral. You know what their motivations are, because this is really not a question of reasons. It's a question of motivational effectiveness, and it's a question of what other things come with the aid. You know, requirements that people attend mass or send, you know, or subscribe to certain beliefs that are harmful to them. Yeah, or, so. or, or just or spreading other beliefs that are harmful that may seem unrelated. So you have people preaching the sinfulness of condom use in areas that are ravaged by AIDS, and so you know they, they out of the goodness of their heart, are preaching what they think is an absolutely central moral precept. Uh, based on their, in this case, Catholicism, uh, but you know they're they're reliably immiserating a generation of people based on their uh, you know religious ignorance, and um, and yet th- their intentions are good, presumably because they really believe these things. They really believe it matters, and but it really is at bottom religious stupidity, which which has because it's out of contact with one uh, the nature of reality, uh, almost certainly, but two better and more productive human motives, it reliably has harms, uh, produces harms, and many of these, are, these harms are unforeseeable. I mean, so, so there's, there's certain, I mean, this, this is just the problem with dogma in principle. Dogma is by definition unresponsive to new arguments and new evidence. 
and therefore you can't correct course. And if you're if you're being guided by a dogma, you're not flexible. You know, when reality tells you you're wrong, you either don't notice or pretend not to notice or insist on moving forward, and then you you bump into to hard objects, and that's what happens with any dogma. Uh, so I'd like to, to to just make a a slight distinction here when you were talking about, say, a Christian missionary who goes to help, you know, relieve famine in sub-Saharan Africa. There, there are two things that you're talking about. One is the harm, foreseeable or not, that might come along with the extra beliefs or the source of motivation to help compared to a secular, you know, Doctors Without Borders. But I think that, that it is a, a bit unfair to say that you might not possess the genuine motivation to help out fellow human beings because you also believe, say, in the resurrection of Jesus. And oh, no, that no. What, it is not that it is more moral to do this as a person who holds no weird supernatural beliefs, but rather that what one might ask of any given individual, what is your motive? So if what you're doing as a Doctors Without Borders person is trying to impress a girl— or that you found that that's the best way to get a job at a at a good hospital two years from now, then I, you know then you might fall prey to the same to the same criticism. What we want, I, I take it, what you're saying is what we want is everybody to be motivated by genuine, actual moral concern for other human beings, and not to let too much of the other stuff taint right the the actions yeah. and, and insofar as the other stuff does taint it whether it's terrestrial or you know another worldly uh concern it does subtract from the obviously moral motivation so if, if you're just trying to get a job at harvard based on your you know summer in sudan uh well that's not really the most compassionate motive to be in sudan trying to help people um, and the same, and so it is with trying to get into heaven after death. It's just it's an ulterior <laughs> motive. But I, I think I should give Tam, Tamler. I'm happy to give you what you I think are fishing for here, which is there are certainly cases where there are people who do good, obviously heroic and moral things based on religious dogmas, which they probably wouldn't have done based on any other consideration that was available to them, right? So the, you can speak of specific cases where this person's going to sacrifice his life to help a, another person because he believes in heaven and hell, or that was the only thing that was going to get him there. And that, yes, this is a local instance in which we can say religion caused an otherwise mediocre and even unethical person to do good that he wouldn't have done Otherwise, that's that's certainly that's, that's true. That's not exactly what I was fishing for, though. It it was more a combination of what Dave just said, and that there might be some person who is who who's generally kind of internalized and incorporated the Christian faith, and that motivated them to genuinely want to help other people, and, and it made that person a happier person, and it made that person it gave that person a more meaningful life than it would otherwise have had. It doesn't have to be that they were only doing it to get into heaven or only doing it to avoid hell. It's just that the package of Christianity ended up for this person causing more benefit for them than they would have had otherwise and more benefit for others than they would have had otherwise. That's the, more the question. Yeah, I, ju I just think that the, the package, uh, we can have a, a fully rational package or at least not a, a, an obviously irrational and obviously sectarian and therefore divisive package that can motivate these kinds of behaviors and can 
help us avoid the really functionally infinite number of problems that can result from people thinking badly and dogmatically about the contingencies of uh, that they encounter as they move forward in in well, is one way to say this that that um, perhaps religion as a cultural product sort of co-opted the the compassion, the good stuff, and served as a, a, a decent vessel to you know maybe make people value things like self-sacrifice and and help for others, but that now it's time to move on. We can build. Uh, a worldview that has as a central source of value, compassion for others, and we no longer need religion. Religious leaders in the past that believed a lot of what what you're calling, you know, the first century bullshit, were people who expanded our moral worldviews in a way that, you know, it would have been great had they done it through pure reason, but they didn't. And I'm not sure that that without those sort of fear of hell or metaphysical views that we would have gotten as far as we've gotten. And I think maybe this is sort of a, a point that Paul Bloom has made, that, that these were our earliest vessels for promoting moral values. And and for that reason, they play an important role in, in sort of our moral history. But they do, I, they do I, such I mean, a I, bad job. I yeah. mean, the, the, these actual specific books, I mean, there are... There are some great moral values in certain passages in these books, uh, but when you look at the morality of the of the the Abrahamic tradition, uh, you know it is the morality of a of a you know, a war god, uh, which is right. just I mean this is the life under the Taliban is is essentially what you get if you try to live out of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or you know the Quran and the Hadith with any kind of completeness and and literalism the only way we recognize the morality of of certain passages in these books like the golden rule is based on our own moral intuitions that have that we have by dint of being human beings and by dint of having conversations outside of reading these books uh you know we we are the we authenticate the morality we we profess to find in these books that seems like a great bridge to talk about issues relating to the objectivity of morality mm-hmm. and our moral intuitions. Should we take a quick break and, and, and come back and, and talk about yeah. that for a bit? Sounds good. Yeah. Come in your life and call. Come in your life. Come in your life and call. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Sam Harris, 
And I uh, just want to let you know that if you want to contact us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com, tweet us at, at Tamler, at Peas, and at verybadwizards. Uh, you can rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook. And if you want to support us, go to our support page. You can either support us via the PayPal link or by clicking on Amazon and buying as you normally would. And especially at this time of the season, that would be really helpful for us. So thanks. So let, let, let's get back into the discussion now. Um, I think we probably agree more than we disagree on the religious question. And the one other thing I think that we're all completely on the same page about are the benefits of drugs, <laughs> or at least <laughs> certain, certain kinds of this drugs. Is the, uh, this is almost, almost why I, I wanted to talk <laughs> to Sam, because uh, I've never read a sort of uh, spiritual treatise that started with MDMA, Correct. but I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad that I did. Actually, we might disagree about one aspect of it. So you were talking about your experience on ecstasy or MDMA and how you were just sitting there with your friend and you felt this kind of love. And, and, and you know, I've had that experience. But, but you described it as if, and this can maybe lead into the, the self-discussion, you describe it as a, as a boundless, impersonal love. Well, well it, um, it was not obviously impersonal until I realized that it, applied to all sentient beings. So it's you know it, my my experience first was just of realizing how much I loved my best friend and being stripped of all of the usual encumbrances of of self-concern and neurosis and seeing myself through his eyes and you know reading his face for signs of 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 you know what he was thinking about what I just said. I mean all that that that, that dynamic of feeling uh, self-conscious, even in the context of a very positive relationship, that was suddenly stripped away from me, and I and I my attention was completely free of self-concern uh, and any of the negative emotions predicated on self-concern. So, uh, as I say in the book, you know, the the feeling of envy was unthinkable to me. I just said, how could I possibly right. envy my friend? I love my friend. I want him to be happy. So anything good about him, even things that were better about him than about me. I just would wish those benefits to him. So that like the implications of all of that were there. And then I realized, and it was quite a shock, that if a stranger had walked into the room at that moment, I would have felt the same well-wishing and, and compassion and connection to his happiness uh, that I felt for my best friend for, for no good reason. It didn't, re it didn't require a history with a person to want them to be happy and to want their dreams realized, etc., then well, I realized that it was somebody that normally got on your nerves. <laughs> well, what about what about Francis Collins walks into the room? <laughs> well, it, it, uh, it, there, there are certain I, I, there are certain states of mind where people would have to try really hard to get on your nerves because you you don't have any. I had this a, this is a story. I don't think I've ever told this story. Um, I, I certainly didn't write about it in my book, but we a friend and I were in India uh, studying with a, one of the teachers I describe in the book and. Uh, one day we um, we dropped acid actually with this teacher uh, and and it was this was like a complete like one one of the worst uh, most poorly timed acid trips ever where we're like we're just coming on 
the, the, the uh, when the end of of the the teaching with him uh, arrives. So it's like we 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 spend this hours with him imbibing his eternal wisdom as we're coming on to to this acid, and then at the end when we are absolutely flying and just basically not qualified to even take a step out the the, the door of his house. Uh, for fear of getting run over by you know Indian traffic, you know the day is over and he's sending us home. And so we go we go back to the hotel and you know this is an Indian hotel where every floor has a butler on it. And so we meet the butler when we are you know at this point just you know portals onto the kind of the infinite wisdom of the universe. I mean we're just there's not a single social or personal barrier in either of us to prevent conversation with this person. And we wind up talking to this guy for like, you know, eight hours, you know, just he's like the most fascinating person we've ever met. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the very next day, you know, we, we, we've met, we've since come down from our acid trip and are now normal, uh, which is to say reasonably well defended uh, people who don't have a lot of time for the, the butler. Uh, and he, he, you know, runs into us expecting to, you know, be best friends with us, essentially, because we were, we had, you know, we were the most patient and, and engaged people uh, on earth, uh, you know, wh- when we're in the middle of an acid trip. And we just couldn't, we tried to be committed to, to, you know, this relationship we had formed, but it was impossible. I mean, just with, you know, the, as you you're say. You're even in a worse state than normal because no. you've just come down from it. Exactly. So. I mean, so it's just like, so the, yeah. you talk about someone getting on your nerves. I mean, it was, you know, it would have been impossible in that previous state of consciousness, but in, in it was all too possible the next morning. And, and that's... Uh, <laughs> This is why Valium is a good thing to have (laughs) after. (laughs) Yeah, the younger generation has that figured out. They all they they plan out their soft landings. Right. Uh, right. I I remember having that feeling with ecstasy, especially because it really doesn't mess with your judgment, as you were saying. Right. You could talk to your parents at that point, and they wouldn't notice anything different or or wrong about you, except that you were happier. But you have this idea where. I should just have this feeling all the time. I, th- there's no reason why mm. I only can feel like this on ecstasy because I'm just appreciating – I'm really for the f- first time fully appreciating who I'm with and the way the table feels and the way the chair feels and the way – you know, and the sounds of the city or whatever it is. Mm. And then it just doesn't work that way. Well, it doesn't. Like, it doesn't. So, it doesn't work that way for for most people. It works that you know there 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 are people who usually not by virtue of ecstasy, but by virtue of some other contemplative practice like meditation, can have something like a permanent transition to what I think we all recognize to be more normative states of consciousness. At least they're they're normative in the range of experiences we tend to seek out in our lives. And it's so, so these effects aren't necessarily as transitory as, as, as our history with drugs might make them seem. So I have a friend, I've, I've never taken ecstasy myself, but I have a friend who grew up in Compton, California. I don't know if I've told this story on the air before, but um, he, Compton, California is, is perhaps infamous, has an unfair reputation for the gang culture, like drive-by shootings and, Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember after college, he, my friend Tony had taken ecstasy for the first time, and I was talking to him. For, he was out there in Compton, and he told me, "Peas, if everybody in Compton took ecstasy, Compton would be a beautiful place." Right. <laughs> he was so excited. 
<laughs> and I was like, wow, that really is a powerful drug. But what what's intriguing to me is that Tamler, and from what Sam said, it seems as if it's giving you a propositional belief. It's not giving you a propositional belief. I don't think that's what – it's more just allowing you to appreciate things to to the fullest degree that they can be appreciated. Yeah. So it's not as if you're saying human – I didn't realize before that humans are valuable. No. No. Well, I mean that is the the conceptual propositional – uh, detritus kicked off by the change in in your attention and your emotional state at that moment. I mean, you're feeling, uh, and again, and people have different experiences on on the same drug. But in my case, I was feeling uh, an overwhelming feeling of of love, which see in the first moment seemed to be occasioned by and therefore directed at my my best friend. You know, I'm with my best friend, and I'm feeling love for him i'm not feeling love for the lamp or the or the the sofa or so it's the moment i thought about what it would be like to meet a stranger at that moment um, i realized that it really wasn't about my my particular history with my friend uh, that warranted this feeling of love it was it was actually a feeling of uh, total commitment to the well-being of other conscious beings not even not even just people so maybe this gets gets us into but segue into a discussion about meditation and in particular in in your book waking up you talk about the meditative practice and the goal seems to be which i'm trying to i'm, I'm trying to come to grips with what i feel to be a contradiction in the focus on using this sort of experience to dissolve the self hmm. um, because as moral agent, I feel like that is counterproductive. And so and, and it's always sort of bugged me about Buddhism that mm. that the whole point is to to you know be one with the universe, but the whole point of morality is to recognize yourself as an individual and others as individuals and then go help them. Yeah, well there there is a parad uh-huh. I will grant you there is there's something paradoxical about that. I think I should clarify what I mean by self, because people can be confused about you know when you say the self is an illusion. Depending on what you mean by self, that can be a, a an especially strange claim. Uh, so, what I don't mean by self is the whole person. You know, I'm not saying that people don't exist or that people are some in some sense illusions. Uh, so, the, the, if you're going to use the word self to mean your body, your brain, your mind, everything about you. Uh, that's not the self that's illusory, and that's not the self that that's not the illusion that you cut through successfully, but uh, in a practice like meditation. Uh, but what what people also can mean by the word self, and what, what I would argue we mean most of the time, uh, is a sense of being a subject of experience. Being not most people don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they have bodies as a kind of possession, and they feel like they're riding around inside their bodies as though it were a kind of vehicle. Uh, and they right. feel like they occupy a, a, a point of, of a consciousness inside their heads. They feel, that, they feel that they're behind their eyes, in their heads, riding around in this body that is in some sense what they are, but not really when you get down to it what they feel themselves to be. They feel like they feel that they're thinkers of thoughts in addition to the thoughts themselves, so that, that they're the, they feel like they're the kinds of they're, they're the author of their thoughts in some way, even though 
you can't really spell out how that's possible. It, it feels that way. And this, the, the, the other side of this coin is the feeling of free will, which we'll, we'll probably talk about because it has an obvious connection to what most people worry about on, on the topic of moral responsibility. Uh, the, the feeling of being a self is also the feeling that you have free will, the feeling that you can author your actions, that you stand upstream of every, uh, of really, of, of, of the stream of causation that is getting that is making choices uh, and decisions and intentions uh, and so you are you are driving the the ship is the feeling it's the feeling of being the source of will and cognition that feeling of being the center of experience rather than m- merely being identical to the totality of your experience that doesn't survive scrutiny and and, and meditation is a way of, of looking into that presumed center clearly enough uh, so as to see that it it's only been implied, and in fact, when you see that clearly, it, it, it drops away. You actually can you can have your conscious life stripped of that feeling of being the center, and yet that does not nullify morality. It doesn't nullify a commitment to your own well-being or the well-being of others. In fact, it makes it makes all of that even more salient. So, so possibility. let me just try to pin down pin down what it is that you're saying because a lot of the time. We don't feel like the authors of stuff that we do because we're habitual creatures that walk around doing things. When you said we feel like the author of our own thoughts, a thought popped into my head, which was, wait, do we really feel like that most of the time? And I was thinking, no. I mean, even that particular thought that just popped into my head I recognized as popping into my head the result of listening to what you said. And is that the kind of thing that you mean, that we would experience all of our thoughts that way? Yeah. And all of our actions that way in the way that we do experience many of our thoughts and many of our actions already? Yeah. Well, this is why – and this is – this is why I say in my book on free will that the the illusion it's not merely that the that free will is an illusion the the illusion of free will is an illusion which is to say that that you act if you pay close enough attention to it the illusion is not even there it's not that there's an illusion that's there that we just we we can't understand you know how free will is true but we have this robust experience of it and you know we just have to deal with that that fact no, if you actually pay very close attention, uh, it, the illusion uh, isn't even there in the way you thought it was. Uh, and, and that's true of, of the sense of authorship of, of one's mental life. You know, I, I, again, I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you now. If I pay attention, it is absolutely clear to me that I do not know how I get to the end of this sentence successfully. And, and in moments when I fail to, when, in moments when I make some grammatical error or I lose my way and, I, and you know, I, I, I'm dealing with my own inability uh, to speak, uh, that is also a mystery. So the successes are a mystery, the failures are a mystery, the, the, my, my inclination to pay attention in one moment or not in another moment is a mystery. All of this is just happening. And yes, the, the, it becomes clear that thoughts simply arise and that I don't know what my next thought will be any more than you know what it will be uh, or, or any more than I know what your next thought will be. It's just that they are – I mean authorship is just, is, is just what it's like to be the first person to notice the thing that just sprung into view. 
Uh, it's actually it, that even is, is slightly strange because you know we're actually hearing what I think at the same time. Uh, I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll know what I'm going to say before I say it, but for the most part, I'm just thinking out loud, and so, it, Sam, it's a mysterious process. I just wanted to let you know that I, in fact, am the author of your books. Um, and so you could yeah. feel free to send royalties my way. Um, I'm glad that you've lived with the illusion that you've been the one sitting down and typing. <laughs> um, but that's more to, to my more general point, which is I, I'm i smoking the wrong stuff maybe because I have the feeling of agency at least all the time. I, I've often maintained that that this sort of metaphysical notion of uncaused freedom that you know it's a hurdle we placed in order to get over um and we haven't gotten over it yet but that's because what i mean at least by freedom is when i am deliberating between two things um i actually feel as if the locus of that decision is me and that's not to deny that there are causes um but in the very least i i feel as if there is a, a local sense of agency. It doesn't make any sense for me to to conclude that that agency is an illusion. Um, well, it, that, maybe well, give it an example. It doesn't feel, this. but it doesn't like, feel it, that way. I, mean, I understand that you feel this feeling of agency, but that, as I argue in my book, that's what it feels like. But that that is the feeling of self. I really do see these as two sides of the same coin: the free will issue and the self issue. Uh, but. It, it's what it feels like to be thinking without being clearly aware of thoughts themselves arising in consciousness as a kind of automaticity. So whatever you happen to be thinking about, these thoughts are just springing into view. And it's like, it's like having a dream and not knowing you're dreaming. You know, there's, there's such a thing as a lucid dream when you, right. can, you can be aware that the, a dream is present, but you're really right. in bed safely asleep. But those are those for the most of us. Those are not the kinds of dreams we have. We have dreams where we actually think we're in a different situation than we're in. We're talking to a friend who isn't there. Or we're being chased by a you know a cheetah that isn't there, uh, and it, our thoughts have a similarly confused character. I would argue almost all of the time, unless you learn how to meditate, which is we think we are our thoughts. We we feel like we're the thinker. There's a weird way in which there. On the one hand, you're saying, look, like there's vast portions of our lives, like Tamler was saying, where we're on, you know, we're on autopilot. You know, I don't remember what I did, for, you know, what I ate for breakfast or driving to work. Like I can, there are moments where I realize I haven't even been reflecting on something and I realize I've been driving the wrong way the whole time. That's sort of the mindlessness. Mm. Um, I, I find it hard to take that as evidence for the fact that I have no agency because the very thing that I'm contrasting that with is the more effortful, agentic choices that I make. And then you tell me, well, that's just because it's an illusion. And no, I'm no, not no, sure. Well, no, no, no. I, but I'm, I'm not making that contrast. I'm saying, so yeah, there are those experiences we have when we're, you know, you're driving a car and you don't realize how you got to your destination. I'm saying that no matter how effortful and, uh, seemingly self-aware your process can be you know give me the perfect example of you in possession of all your faculties where you're exercising your free will to it to the ultimate degree you know you're choosing between you're choosing whether to take a job or not take a job uh, you know and you're you're debating about this with your wife and you're, you're thinking about it for hours and you've got the pros and cons <laughs> written on a you know on a uh, legal pad You've told yourself you're going to decide at midnight tonight 
and you know it's 11:59 and you're watching the second hand approach midnight and you're going to make a decision you, you all the facts are in view and now you're going to decide i'm saying to you that that one that feeling of self in the driver's seat is an illusion that is vulnerable to scrutiny which is to say you could look closely enough at it or I could, you could take the right drug and you'd you'd realize that well that was actually a false view that but compelling. you still have to make the choice right? yes okay and, but, to... but the choice you're going to make a choice but the choice will be if you look at it closely the choice is fundamentally mysterious to you that you are you do not know why you choose one thing over the other no matter how big a thing it is or, or no matter how trivial the the thing that tips the balance is inscrutable to you you can't well, know why you need to know why but right? do you I mean, need yeah, do, yeah does it need to be that transparent to you no but it's, it's, it's not it's not a feel like it's you it's not a matter of that transparent it's not even slightly transparent we can get bogged down on whether this is i mean this is a classic i think uh, attack on this uh, the, the libertarian view of free will and i i don't necessarily endorse that i was sort of endorsing some more stripped down conditions for distinguishing uh certain kinds of mental states that we might deem as uh, more agentic and less agentic, not in, not in the metaphysical sense, but, but in, in a very local sense where we can say, look, you know, I tripped and fell and knocked you over in one right. case. In another case, I had a desire and an intention um, to do it wherever those came from. As I think you probably know, I don't disregard the importance the the important distinction between voluntary and involuntary actions uh, but before we dive into that let, let me just say that I, I think there there is one thing that is novel about the case i'm making here against free will which is uh, at least it's novel to me because I, I didn't read it in anyone else's case but it's obviously quite conventional for for people to criticize free will based on a deterministic or determinism plus randomness account of how third-person causes propagate in the universe. There's just no way to make sense of how one thing following the next gives you free will. But uh, what I'm also saying is that subjectively, it's not there. It's a, the, the, the conventional starting point for philosophers here is that subjectively, we have this, this robust experience of free will but objectively, which is in a third-person sense, it doesn't make much sense. And that's where the, the impulse toward compatibilism uh, gets launched and a is indigestible. Actually, Sam, a former guest on the podcast and a good friend of mine, Eddie Namius, agrees with you that we don't have that subjective sense of libertarian free will or ultimate authorship or ultimate sourcehood. And actually uses that as the basis for his compatibilism. Um, oh well, I, I haven't seen that. I've actually seen some of what he's he's written, but I haven't I haven't seen that. So that's that's interesting. Can you see how that might work? Right? It's like, well, if we don't even have this illusion, then why? Well, well no, no. But, but people are do. Are we denying something that we yeah, but, but that, that we don't that, even think we have in the first place? Why aren't we talking about free will as at least something that we actually experience? But but that's not that's not actually the the common case. Most people, uh, I am absolutely convinced, do have uh, or think they have an experience of libertarian free will. Most people are walking around with a a a sense of, of of subjective dualism, first of all. I mean they feel like they're 
yeah. their their souls. But are souls. you talking about that propositionally or subjectively, like their phenomenology? It, no, I mean, but, but more more the latter. I mean, I think I, if you get them talking, depending on how sophisticated they are philosophically, they may have some, you know, they may hem and haw a bit about it. But but I think most people feel like selves, and they feel like the they're the thinkers of their thoughts and they feel like there's a thinker that is not reducible to the flow of thought, but there's a thinker that is kind of the author of, of thought the, the could have done otherwise uh, criterion. People are living with the illusion that if you, if you rewound the movie of their life, they, they could do things differently. In, in I'm, I'm exactly. confused. I thought you said that we didn't. Fe- I, I thought well, that no. your previous remarks but were I, I aimed at. If, if Sam was saying that if you pay attention, conditions, you can realize that you don't even have it. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you have to be a, a very sophisticated observer of your mental life to re- recognize that the illusion isn't there. Otherwise, you otherwise seems, you're taken like in weird, by it. It seems like a weird form of argument. That is. I mean, I could argue that there are certain meditative practices that increase your feeling of sort of metaphysical power over your fate, or that there are certain drugs that give you particular source of confidence in your, you know, your agentic mm-hmm. power. Um, so, you know, you took ecstasy, someone, someone else took cocaine, and you guys have very different philosophical treaties um, that you arrived at the truth from... I don't what, think that one of us. I'm convinced argument. one of us is making a lot more money in that in that circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the man on ecstasy is is at a disadvantage in any negotiation. Uh, well, you know, cocaine is expensive. So, <laughs> so, so. <laughs> well, no. So that's um, a good, that's a good point. But that's I, I have an answer for that. What, I mean, one is that you. It's not just the experience. It's whether the experience lines up with what we have good reason to believe about the nature of reality. So, for instance. If the if the brain were such a thing, you know, f- physically, as to yeah. suggest that there's there must be an ego sitting in the center of it, well, then any right. ex- well, that, any experience that gave right. you a clearer sense of ego would would seem to be converging with what we think is probably true about the nature of the mind anyway, based on our examination of the brain. But right, but that's but then you don't need the other stuff, right? Like, I mean, you might need it epistemologically to realize the truth of the brain but the truth of the brain at least is the is the stuff that's doing the real work right i mean no and no no it's 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 not it's just that that's what it, it is a convergence which makes it plausible it's plausible from a both a first person side and a third person side and if those things were mismatched i mean if if, if there was a third person picture uh, I mean that th- th- that actually is the case for our you know our common sense dualism and our common sense libertarianism. There's a mismatch. There's a third person side, the, the, uh, a, a, a frank discussion about neurophysiology and other physical causes, mm-hmm. which seems to strip the world of agents which are really, really, really responsible. Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. Uh, okay, well, okay, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get, we'll, it gives us a, a reason to doubt. Uh, a notion of an ego and a notion of an ego that can be the the free and ultimate cause of its thoughts and actions. And I guess I'm not sure why 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 we would put why we would hold so highly the sort of fringe experiences of successful meditation over years or particular kinds of drugs influencing our brain as the thing 
that we hold, uh, you know, as ev- evidence when it's consistent with the third person account, because by and large, the most clear headed, rational in the moment of reflection that is inconsistent with a third person account. And I, I think that that convincing me that that inconsistency is easily overridden by but a few experiences that a few people have had, you know, throughout the course of history in esoteric practice or in inducing mental states through drugs could i mean it may it may be that it yeah it magically gives you the truth when you take ecstasy or do meditation but i don't have any reason to believe that that's the case other than the third person account that you well well on one level it comes down to the hard problem of consciousness it's just that there's there are there's no evidence for consciousness at all let alone any of its actual qualitative character in a merely third person discussion about the nature of reality i mean you look at a brain there's no indication that it's conscious and and if we weren't already experiencing consciousness on our own side we would have no clue that consciousness exists no matter what we said about brains or their 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 uh, entanglement with with the rest of physical reality so it's there are certain things just just talking about the existence of of mental states at all um, you, you sort of need you need both sides. You need to be able to use the language and the data from both sides, and you should be honest about when the data from one side is is being smuggled into the clockwork. When even when people are pretending to only talk about the brain, they're 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 smuggling in concepts that only make sense at the level of the mind. You know, you can say at the end of the conversation, well, of course, we know that the mind is what the brain is doing or the, the consciousness is a product of information processing in a system like a brain. But still, the, the, you, know, I, you know, obviously not every philosopher agrees with me, but I, I think the hard problem of consciousness is a genuinely hard problem and that consciousness is not conceptually reducible to a discussion of neurotransmitters and, you know, synaptic uh, organization no matter even if we understood exactly what consciousness you know how it emerges at, at the level of the brain that understanding yeah. is not a surrogate for the actual experience of consciousness i i agree i want to act well, we should move on to the responsibility question and, about yeah. and so yeah let's well, talk does. about that because here's where i think we we all agree right that there's no libertarian free will, that we can't be the ultimate authors of our actions. We don't have any kind of robust metaphysical ability to do other than we actually do. I mean, I think we're all on board with that. But I think where we disagree, or at least where you and I, Sam, disagree, is on this question. Given that we lack that kind of free will... Um, does that mean that we can't be morally responsible for our actions? So in other words, does that mean that we can't deserve blame, praise, punishment, and reward? And I say deserves just to indicate that this is independent of any consequentialist benefits that may come from the punishment or the reward or the blame and praise. And I think you say no, right? You think it just follows from the lack of free will that we can't be morally responsible. And my view is, my new view, because I used to agree with you on that, is that that's false. Um, And while I think many people share your intuition, especially when you consider these things abstractly, it is ultimately just an intuition. There's no logical or rational argument you can make for that view. And when you get into real life with real people and real emotions in play, then I think the intuition is not... 
it's not even that strong for us and I, I and it's virtually non-existent in in many other cultures first of all the the the, the dividing line between intuition and and rational argument I, I think is fuzzier than you make out and I, you know, all of our rational arguments are cashed out by some brute intuitions or or, or d- depend on some brute intuitions which we can't step outside to justify and as l- as long as i can show you that the uh, notion of moral responsibility or, or just desserts uh, or, or the, the logic of, of retribution fails by intuitions which and arguments that, that depend on them that you're not inclined to disavow, well, then I, could, then I can show you that, that even by your own standards, uh, these concepts don't make much sense. The other thing I would say is that this, the separation between Consequentialism, and and uh, I don't. I know you have philosophically sophisticated uh, listeners, but I don't want this to blow by everybody. Um, so, I'm one thing I'm I'm arguing is that we can hold people quote morally responsible and re- and rely on on uh, things like punishment and praise and blame uh, for consequentialist reasons. So, I'm not somebody who thinks that, that these play, these things have no place in our relating to one another. I, I think we obviously want to praise our kids and blame malefactors right. and, and lock dangerous people up. So so none of that goes out the window. It's just I do think that that once we admit that libertarian free will doesn't exist and that if you rewind the movie of somebody's life, they're going to do the same thing a trillion times in a row given the state given the exact state of uh, of the universe repeating itself well then something does shift this notion that that people are um, truly uh, deserving of punishment uh, and that for instance it's it's legitimate to hate somebody uh, uh, as opposed to merely fear them for their for their propensity to do harm uh, I think those do those things do change and so those I think those are important ethical implications I mean there's a I don't want to be equivocating on what we mean by by blame and praise and desert here because I mean there's a way in which I want to use the term blame in the deep sense which which is simply to say that what you are saying can we at least stick to the term blame in an, in in its non-consequentialist sense that is it's a, yeah. the particular attitude I have toward you that is about your desert it, it, and it's appropriate regardless of whether it benefits the world or benefits that person to blame them. And I think we all agree that blame and praise and punishment and reward uh, can have benefits. And what we're arguing about is whether we, is whether somebody can deserve it over and above whatever those benefits um, or costs are. So, so one of the, I think we should be clear about libertarian free will and when what we're all disavowing and it's, it's uh Consequences. We see the consequences differently, but uh, to, to to my eye, when you disavow libertarian free will, you are admitting that no one picked their parents, no one picked their genes, no one picked the environment that that sculpted the their central nervous system and put their brain in precisely the state it, it was neurophysiologically prior to this moment's thought and action. Uh, and so, right. I, uh, we've, tr- we've already we've granted that we've granted we grant all of that. that. We all we all we all believe that we're not even just granting it for the sake of argument. I think we all believe it. We, so we all believe that, and yet you and I seem to see different moral implications there. Uh, right. What I would say is that 
that is a if you create a highly artificial but nonetheless clarifying circumstance like a philosopher's thought experiment where you imagine an evil genius piping in thoughts and intentions and desires into another person's brain i I think for most of us and and you can correct me if i'm wrong the moral uh, calculus shifts and we see that person who's now in the grip of an an evil genius's uh uh, wiles uh, as a mere victim of of uh, that evil genius, so that the, if uh, then the person is no longer responsible for his thoughts and actions, and we wouldn't punish him for something that an evil genius made him do. Is that correct? Yeah, depending on what you mean by most of us, I think certainly most of us in the in individualistic societies, and I think that's your target, right? Is us? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so okay. you you in particular, Tamlar. So so you agree that if an evil genius is putting the thoughts in your head and those thoughts lead you to to act badly in society well then you are a victim yes. of the evil genius and 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 you don't deserve the punishment that you may get that's right um, i i so, i grant i grant you that okay so the challenge is to is is to see how uh the case of the evil genius and the case of ordinary uh, causation are different uh, in a, a morally right. important sense. And, and I, th- I would put in between those two a, a kind of middling case where you have someone like Charles Whitman, the guy who climbed the cl- clock tower in, in uh, I guess it was 1964 in, in the University of Texas and killed something like 14 people and shot you know dozens more. Uh, and it was revealed that he had a, a brain tumor pressing on his amygdala, which is you know just the sort of brain tumor you would think would put pressure on on his uh, ability to control his his impulses, and he in fact wrote a letter, which was in essence his suicide note, uh, describing how he had been feeling these these inexplicable rages for months, and he even suggested that an autopsy be done and have his and and his brain examined so that people could figure out what was wrong with him. Uh, so right. that's a, that seems to be a a middle case where you don't have some outside agent like an e- evil right. genius who we are now tempted to blame. So now let me give you a case on the other side. Let's say I go out f- to a bar after uh, a seminar with my grad students and I get into a car and I've pro- and I've had a few too many drinks and I probably shouldn't be driving. I kind of even know that in my mind, but then I've done this drive a hundred times. My wife is working and so I just get in the car anyway, and I drive home. And on the way home, just as before I get my house, uh, a, a little girl or a little boy runs out in front of my car, and I hit her, and maybe, maybe I don't want to say kill her because I don't even want to think about that, but let's say I, 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 I break her leg. And I know that I don't have libertarian free will. I know I didn't choose my parents. I know there's some sense in which I couldn't have done otherwise. And yet, there's no way I'm not going to feel like I deserve blame, like I deserve punishment, like if the father comes over to my house finding out that it was me and just kicks the shit out of me, I have that coming independent. I, I, I don't need more deterrence 
for drunk I w- for drunk right. driving. Uh, right. But that I that that's something that I have coming. That that's something that's fully appropriate for me to experience. So you see, like even my own intuitions about this are conflicted. We can have cases like the ones that you're giving. And, you know, the ones that Dirk Paraboom gives his four-case argument, which is trying to do a kind of similar thing. But then there are also these cases from the other side that draw me towards the, yeah, who gives a fuck if I don't have libertarian free will? I did this. I, 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 I thought about it. I, 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 I even at the time knew that it, that it might not be a good idea for me to drive, and I still did it. I, I'm going to feel like I have a lot of punishment coming to me if I do that. Well, yeah, I, I would not dispute the fact that there's a that there are powerful intuitions on the side of what I ultimately consider a moral illusion, and that certain of these, these uh, intuitions uh, and conventions may be worth indulging for consequentialist reasons. So, so it, it, you know, you're, the, the, the guilt, there may be, it may be good for you and good for the world that you feel that level of guilt, uh, or certainly some level of guilt, uh, if nothing else, is going to keep you from ever driving drunk again, say. So uh, we could talk about what norms follow from fully admitting to ourselves that libertarian free will doesn't exist. Uh, but I, I do think that there's, I, I would grant you that there's, there's a powerful uh, illusion and it will but be see, especially what you powerful. call an illusion I, I i i don't know maybe you want to weigh in on dave that I mean, doesn't, yeah, that I doesn't mean, seem think... like an illusion to me it just seems like what i consider the appropriate suitable right, response well, to, to, to well, what i did there's there's no I, I don't think there's any way that these cases are actually going to distinguish between these two views because at heart at at, at the very heart of it you know what Sam, what you're saying, like when you bring up the tumor case or the middling case, for you there isn't even a middling case. I mean, you're just you're using that language sort of to illustrate your point. But for you, to, you know, to 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 put it one way, it's tumors all the way down, right? I mean, there's there is no case in which we can distinguish a that you know the purely madman from the man being controlled by an evil neuroscientist from the the robot from the fully rational autonomous person who has all resources available at hand for you there just is no distinction and this entails there being no true blame well well there there that, are distinctions but again they are they are consequentialist distinctions right they're, they're pragmatic that, and that's, ones and that's why I, that's why I actually want to just get that right out there. Like for, for you, to the extent that we actually have different attitudes toward the person who was under the influence of a tumor or a schizophrenic uh, delusion, for you, that is no different than the regular evildoer. The only difference is that people descriptively might have different attitudes and that there might be a purpose for these attitudes in that c- certain sorts of people are more are more likely to be dissuaded from evil actions by receiving by being the targets of blame right. than than right. others and so, but i would but, what but i would be, add yeah. i mean the asymmetry here though is that is that i think tamler can be destabilized and ambushed by certain developments in you know, for, for instance, in the progress of science. So, for instance, you take the seemingly most culpable person out there, the person for whom what, what I'm calling an illusion is strongest. So you just have a genuinely evil person who takes sadistic right. pleasure in causing harm to others. He's just the, you know, the, the perfect mustache twirling but psychopath. Uh, right. And uh, this is a person who uh, – 
if we fully understood the nature of psychopathy, if we fully understood how his brain uh, was, you know, since the moment of the Big Bang forward, uh, you know, and you can you can add any contribution of randomness you like, uh, how his brain was put in precisely the state could, that could that could not do otherwise. Well, then, yes, it would it would it is tumors all the way down. This is just a very complex brain tumor story, and. Yeah, I, I understand that you're you're not uh, that an account of mere causality there doesn't convince you, but then imagine if we have a cure for this now disease of psychopathy. The moment you have a cure, then it's appropriate to call it a disease. Now you know he he's just an evil person now because we don't understand evil uh, at the level of the brain. But the moment we have a little blue pill that is a perfect cure for evil that turns him into a genuinely nice guy who says, I'm so happy that I was born in a time where my evil could have been cured. And now no one after me need ever be evil ever again. Uh, we would just give him the pill. We wouldn't punish him. Uh, we would, we would view him as a, he would suddenly become someone who had a brain tumor or who had been in the grip of an evil genius or, or so I argue. And if, and if uh, you disagree with that, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear why. Yeah. Is the, I mean, I, I actually agree, but I think that that having that pill changes. So, so I I would like to maintain the distinction between people who seem to be responsive to reasons in all the ways that that you and I are, and still do evil, than people who people who are compelled by by forces that are not generally acting upon a normal person. Right, but and it, that's it, why I think yeah. the mustache twirling villain psychopath isn't the perfect candidate <laughs> for deserved blame and punishment because they have what we recognize as some sort of disorder. I think the perfect candidate for blame and punishment is the hypothetical me that drunk drives and hits a kid on the way home. That's the perfect candidate for blame and punishment, and you know, whether there is a pill, a moral pill or not, I'm still going to feel very strongly, more, more strongly than I feel about the evil neuroscientist scientist case, I'm going to feel more strongly that I deserve blame and punishment for that. And that's, that's an important intuition that has to be accounted for. And I just don't, I don't see the sense in which it's an illusory intuition, whereas the other intuition is the right intuition. That's the true intuition, and this is an illusion. I, I, I mean, you I, you can assert that, but I don't see what makes I mean, that Sam, any Sam more of a, an illusion than than the intuition that the guy in the evil neuroscience case doesn't deserve punishment or blame. Well, I think I, I'll tell you why I think it's it, I can argue for it, because I, I just heard you give me what sounded like a consequentialist justification for this distinction. So you didn't like the mustache twirler because because he's he's he actually is in morally incorrigible. Punishing him is not going to have an effect. Reasoning with him is not going to have an effect. But you before you got in a car drunk, you're the sort of person who was available to chains of reasoning and kind of micro punishments and you should have known better and you should have done otherwise. You you didn't do otherwise because and and that process of kind of mulling it over after too many beers wasn't effective for you uh, for reasons which if we spelled them out would look like just this mindless uh, concatenation of causes 
of a, of a sort coming from an evil genius or the Big Bang or a brain tumor. So, for instance, what if you found out that but for uh, the the cosmic ray bombardment of your uh, uh, frontal cortex that, it, that you had received that day, you would have made a different choice, right? You, it, that, you know, a few cosmic rays undermined your, but your willpower, uh, uh, the crucial increment that kept you from following your better judgment in that case in a way that you had followed it a hundred times before, right? What do we think about that? I mean, there's two two answers to that. One is, you know, in, in the case that I'm describing, I, do, I have no reason to think that cosmic rays played a role here, although I fully admit that something caused me to, um, in this particular case, go against my better judgment and, and, and get in the car. But honestly, even if it was the cosmic rays or whatever, I, I have a kind of a brute intuition, which, as you say, is what these rational arguments come down to, that I, I don't care. So it was the cosmic rays. I still have a have a good beating coming to me and maybe and jail time and a lifetime of feeling guilt and remorse. It, the consequentialists benefits of that are non-existent. I, I don't I don't need to be deterred anymore. Nobody else will be more or less deterred by what happens to me. And I still think it's appropriate. The but the guilt, so the punishment uh, all of it. Well, let me jump in because I, you know, it, I think this is sort of an impasse. I don't think that what Sam is saying is that you're not allowed to have the intuition. He's saying, look, you are making a distinction in your intuitions. You are saying that in some cases it is inappropriate to blame somebody, and right. that these cases are ones in which there is clearly a set of a set of circumstances that that were you know, that compelled somebody to act in, in, in certain ways, like brain tumors or evil neuroscientists. Right. And it, it's not that you can't have the intuition that you are blameworthy. It's that the burden is on you to distinguish what are the sets of causes or the sets of forces that are making your blame, in this case, your self-blame, more appropriate than any other case if it really is tumors all the way down for everybody. Uh, let me just yeah. add one thing, because that's a great summary, David. But I would add that the impulse to draw a line there between the cases that merit blame and the cases that that you agree don't i would argue is always going to be based on a poverty of information about causes and once you get once you fill in more of the blanks about causes it's all going to look like cosmic rays. It's all going to look like tumors. It's all going to look like the, the, the mere functioning of totality exceeds and precedes any conceivable notion of your own agency. But you're, you're owning the, in the totality my, In of my causes. case, believe me when I tell you that I, I understand that my actions were caused by s factors that trace back ultimately – out of my control, trace back to before I was born, that some combination of my genetics and my experience ultimately led me to make that decision. Okay, so there's no more information on that count that I need, right? right but what's uh, to distinguish so, then? So, so then, then what yeah, how distinguishes is it, how is it me? 
it's different from the evil neuroscience case in that nobody was manipulating me. Nobody was, you know, I haven't been hypnotized. I haven't been brainwashed. I I don't have a tumor. I was able to deliberate in a way that I always deliberate. There was there was nothing different from the inside, from the outside, in terms of this is just how I am after three or four beers. I I, that's so wait. So can we boil down this distinction though? I mean, because I mean, there's one sense in which what Sam is is not saying is that it has to be some manipulating you he's like all he's right. all he's saying is that everything is a special case of manipulation but of that's just misusing the word thing. manipulation right everything is well, ultimately caused but not everything so maybe, is manipulated so maybe it is but but then what sam means is that causing undermines this so but you said something which i think is is might be critical which is that i i mean my i, I sense that there is a real distinction to be made between people who have the capacity for agency in the sense that they seem to be responsive to the right kinds of pieces of information or reasons or or the suffering of others or whatever in the way that most human beings are that puts them in a different category and for me it is an empirical question what what the causes of evil were so now both of us reject libertarian free will. I think, you know, we're all at the, at the end of the day, we're all puppets. I think that the only point of disagreement Roombas. Here is, we're not, we're Roombas. We're all, we're all Roombas. The, the only point of disagreement here is whether it's appropriate to merely say that an attitude of blame for the sort of normal wrongdoer, the embezzler, that attitude that I have of blame, whether it is unjustified in a deep sense or whether it is merely justified in a consequentialist sense. So, yeah, yeah. And, 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 so they're, and they're not necessarily coming from a consequentialist calculation right. on anyone's part, but they would be justified at the end of the day by such a calculation. So you, right. They're like we, visual we, illusions, right? Visual illusions make us navigate the world successfully, but they are giving us the wrong information often, right? We can show this right. experimentally. But, um, but this is the, But there's a key difference between a visual illusion and my intuition that I deserve blame and punishment in that case. The visual illusion you can independently measure, say the Mueller liar illusion, right? With yeah. the two lines, right? You can measure them and you can say, oh, look, I was wrong. But there's no ruler to measure whether my intuition about my case is 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 right or wrong or uh, any more right or wrong than my intuition in the case of the evil neuroscientist or the guy with the tumor or whatever. You know, there isn't an independent there there is the ruler is your consistency across these cases. Right. I mean, you're right in that there's no objective measure, but the ruler, as Sam is using it, is to just say. The burden is on you. But why is the burden on me? Why is the burden on me? There's two rulers. There's two rulers, in fact, uh, Tamler. One one is the ruler David just spelled out, which is the internal consistency of your position. If you you have to be able to give reasons for distinguishing down or 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 stopping the slide from a condition of clear moral responsibility, as you find in the drunk driving case, down to a clear case of, of no responsibility. As Sam, the, you the, yourself uh, said that some brute intuitions can't be justified by further reasons, right? We're no, all, but this is, we're but you all, can't just use that to justify any intuition. No, I agree. I mean, yeah. This is the and, core and, intuition. And I, and I think I can right. put pressure on your case. The, the more we find out about the brain, the more we find out about, in this case, willpower, and uh, the more we just consider the causes uh, conspired to make you drive on this occasion and not on other occasions where you were capable of, of 
of you know calling a cab the, the line you're drawing between this case and the other cases of clear causal uh, exculpation the burden so, is on so you here, to, to resist so here's that the thing i'll draw the line uh, to make you both happy okay I'll draw the line, as Dave said, as the capacity for agency, the capacity to be responsive to reasons both at the time and in general, and I'll draw the line there. And then if you force me to reconcile my evil genius intuition with the my intuition in the drunk driving case, then I will say – I feel more strongly. My, the intuition has more force for me in the in the drunk driving case than it does in the evil genius case. So I will sacrifice that evil genius intuition to retain the drunk driving case, and then I'll be consistent, which I know Kantians like Dave value above all else. You pull and, that and, out and, only and when it, you want to get away I mean, with deep but, in. <laughs> let's talk about the drunk drunk driving case in a little more detail because it's, it's fishy for a variety of reasons. So. You are someone who more fishy than an evil neuroscientist. <laughs> well, well, yeah, because because you find yourself responsible, uh, especially responsible because you're someone who, in general, could have resisted drunk driving. So you're 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 open to reasons. You're you're normally someone who wouldn't have put yourself in this situation, and so it's that much more egregious that you did. Because if we made you someone who were who was who was just a compulsive drunk driver who really couldn't resist the impulse to drink and drive, well, then that becomes the case of the mustache twirler who's not so interesting to you because he's got a real problem. So that you, you find these middling cases to be the cases that are really exemplary, uh, some kind of warranted uh, retribution, right? Is that I have that correct? Yeah. But but these are precisely the cases where. The behavior is most out of character and in some ways more surprising and less perspicuous to, to, you, to you subjectively or to us from the outside. So it, it, it's not it, – you know, you're, you're generally a responsible person. You're more you're, – you're not really someone who's likely to mow down somebody else's kid. And so if you happen to do it, it in some sense seems less reasonable to punish you because this is less reflective of who you are. You know, it's a, like I—I I don't know if you read Dan Dennett's uh, attack on my book *Free Will*, um, and then my response to it. But we we both talked about the the case of Austin's, the famous case of Austin's missed putt. And uh, imagine someone putting a a um, on a putt, putting a golf ball on a, on a putting green and and you know missing a missing the the hole by an inch. Uh, now, with all the causes in the universe being exactly as they were, you know, he's going to miss that hole by that inch a trillion t times in a row. Dan felt that, you know, this was a ridiculous way to look at, at someone's competency. And the missed putt analogy, I think, is useful here, because if you imagine someone like Tiger Woods or any other great golfer missing a very short putt, and you compare that to the case where I, uh, being a bad golfer, miss a very short putt, um, my missing the putt is more more descriptive of of the thing i'm of how i'm going to tend to golf i mean I, you you would expect in, in some sense uh when tiger woods misses the putt even though he should have made it he's in some in one sense more responsible f as a golfer because he really I mean, 99 times out of 100 he's going to make this putt and you know 99 times out of 100 you're not going to drive drunk uh or that drunk that's the case of the greater responsibility but in some sense, when Tiger Woods misses that one-foot putt, it is even 
more corroborating of the lack of free will in the system because it's crazy that he missed that putt. He can't explain it to himself. You know, that really is a case where it does seem to be cosmic ray bombardment. It seems like something went wrong because that's not how Tiger Wood putts a golf ball. I get I get what you're saying, Sam, about the there's certain things that are more informative, certain acts that are more informative of certain people. But I, I, I don't get what whether or not you're resisting that there is a real difference between people who seem responsive to things like moral reasons or or social norms compared to people who do not. And so let me let me take it to to, to a question of maybe we could call it a question of epistemology, which is at the end of the day, if it's, you know, it's, it's nothing but matter in motion, nobody is responsible for believing the wrong things that they believe either. But I think that, that, that most of us do hold people responsible for purely wrong-headed views. And so, so well, for no, instance, I, I don't, I, it, so again, th- yeah. we, we, it's easy to get confused here because we, there are two levels of reality that we are talking about. And one, I would put a rea- a level of convention where we talk about people as, as, as the authors of their actions and as being moral agents and as being ultimately responsible. Uh, we, we, we relate to people in that way pragmatically. And to some degree that is, unavoidable. I think it's it's fine to to uh pull the levers of of praise and blame without constantly inspecting the mechanism and casting doubt upon it. And the different and there the rationale for that is is ultimately consequentialist and it fully acknowledges that there are people who will be influenced by reasons and there are people who won't. There are people who have willpower, there are people who don't. There's there's a difference between having a brain tumor and and not having a brain tumor, all of these differences apply. I mean, I, I think that though that that there's an easy way in which in which you are erasing the power of these distinctions, whether or not there's an ultimately consequential justification for punishing these people or not. I, I just want to get to the heart of of this a reluctance that you have for making a a real distinction, whether or not it's a moral distinction we can get into. But a very real, even scientific distinction between the sort of person who seems responsive to the things that most human beings are responsive to um, in the way that we want them to be, in the way that normal people are, in the way that we raise our kids to be, and the people who are not. And I, I think that it is a, a, a bit of hand wavery to say that this isn't a scientific difference, that science shows that it's all, you know, it's, it's just tumors all the way down. Because these people really are empirically, they, they act differently depending on the different stimulus that you give them. So for, for you, I might actually be able to convince you with a syllogism that, you know, about the truth of Socrates being mortal or something. And some people, they would not be, they, they would just be, you know, they would just never get it. So, so sure, that is a difference in their brain, but it's a difference that actually matters. Now oh, you yeah, can say, yeah. Right. So you can say that at the end of the day, whatever I do to a person who is a homophobe or or whatever um, will have to be justified on consequentialist grounds. And even those consequentialist punishments might distinguish between people who seem to be re- responsive to reasons or agentic or not. But I'm interested in the just that distinction that might dictate what kind of consequentialist punishments you are giving people who seem responsive to reasons and people who don't. And and what I'm saying is that I don't think that that's too far away from saying that an attitude of blame is not a mistake. 
that distinguishes between those two people. Well, an attitude of of guilt, an attitude of vindictiveness, an attitude that these are not illusions. These it's a result of an appraisal. It's a it's just like any other emotion that might be appropriate or not. That is, if I think that you stole twenty bucks from my wallet, I might get angry. If I find out that that you didn't, then I shouldn't be angry anymore. Right. Right. So you could say that the anger is an appropriate reaction. To right. to my appraisal of this, and I think that blame just, could just, just like the atti- you know the attitude of forgiveness or exoneration is on no firmer ground than the attitude of anger or guilt or resentment. And well, no, I, I think I think it is the moment you have complete information, the moment you see that someone couldn't have done otherwise, you are in a position of forgiveness, even while lamenting the bad effects. Of the actions, so well, you, the you are. You, you are. No, no, but so, I, I think but, you would be too. The moment you emotionally absorb the consequences of having complete information, I mean, you're, you're, I don't think you're you're paying attention to how a lack of information is providing a ground for certain kinds of moral emotions, vindictiveness, for instance, or hatred. I, uh, which I, I think you underestimate how much I agree with you about my lack of libertarian free will. Ultimately, everything about me traces back to factors beyond my control and that everything about me is a matter ultimately of luck. I I don't know what new information you want me to find out about myself that will change my mind. I know know you're granting that in the abstract, but I think – but everything you're you're subsequently saying about how abhorrent it would be uh, to be the person who who ran over somebody's kid and how you would deserve a beating – uh, purely for the not having nothing to do with the consequences for anyone, but just you know, it's just as in terms of of uh, the rightness of it in some you know platonic sense. Well, in a moral sense, right? I just I think it would be morally appropriate. Morally I mean, appropriate, I, but without you, reference you, to any, without reference to anything consequentialist, without re- reference to the satisfaction that the father would get right. from it. Without reference to the deterrence value on you or anybody else, you unplug because right, we're all not assuming those. consequentialism in this debate, right? That's the that's the thing we're fighting about is whether we should be consequentialists about blame and punishment. We can't just assume consequentialism. Well, you know, I'm, but I'm I'm saying that every time if I, if I ask you to spell out the reasons why something is morally justified. Uh, and this is this is actually sort of moving off topic for a moment, but it, I think that you you inevitably will start talking in terms of consequences. You'll talk about how terrible the father feels and how he deserves to be able to beat you up because it's going to be cathartic and it just feels better to be able to beat you up than to than to forgive you. Or you would hate yourself so much you could never live with yourself if you were just the kind of person who could forget. Uh, and and you know absolve yourself of your own guilt uh, for re- acting that recklessly and irresponsible. Irresponsibly, you don't want to be that kind of person. Uh, you wouldn't, and you wouldn't want uh, you know your kids to have that kind of father, etc. I mean, these are all when you I think dig into the details. These are feelings that link up with a picture of consequences. Um, and, and we could talk, and and you may want to deny that, but but I don't, I don't think we've actually. Um, gotten to the the core of what I think is the asymmetry here, which is you have you've granted the evil genius case as being one in which blame is really blame in the in the deep sense is not 
appropriate. Uh, and yet, and you, and you, you seem to think you have built a, a you've, you've found a bright line between other cases where blame is clearly ap- appropriate. I'm arguing that that line is, is vulnerable and will be erased by just a deluge of one, a deluge of information as to the nature of causes and two interventions, which change people, which, which would then, you know, cures for evil, say, or cures for irresponsibility or cures for lack of willpower. Then you'd see someone as just unlucky to have been born too early for the cure. So what do we do with all the drunk drivers who have killed people's kids who are languishing in prison once we have a, you know, a, something we can pipe off the wireless network in every city in America that just gives people, you know, greater powers of resistance against drunk driving. But the, then what do you say to the person who just got convicted 15 minutes ago, right? He's now going to prison but, for, but that's for okay. 20 let me, years. Let me jump in because I actually think that that changes, that would justifiably change my attitude of blame. That is, if there were an easy pill that could cure any pedophile. Right. I, I, I actually would blame them less. I, I don't think that that undermines my desire to blame people who otherwise would be responsive to reasons. And so and I think th- there's one other thing that I keep wanting to jump in with, which is that you keep mentioning that scientific discoveries will increasingly convince us of this. But it is it might elucidate the causes, but there there's a way in which the minute we took on a materialistic view of causation in, in the universe, this was all, I mean, this was a, there is no more information. That is, there is no new information about the brain yeah. that will come out tomorrow that will actually change my view on whether or not everything is ultimately caused. So, and I think that this is actually a mistake that people make when trumpeting neuroscience as somehow having philosophical implications. I mean, this was a danger with behaviorism. You know, this was a concern with, with behaviorism. This was a concern with the foreknowledge of God. Um, there, there are a variety of ways in which you can get to this, this problem and sci- emerging scientific evidence is not one of those ways. No, I, I would grant you that. I don't think we need any more information than we had 300 years ago to dispense with the notion of free will and to see it's uh, the moral implications of, of doing so. Uh, it's just people's intuitions shift once you start talking about things like brain tumors, and once you, and then when you start talking about the details of neurophysiology, the the boundary between a brain tumor and just the rest of neurophysiology begins to look fuzzy to uh, ultimately right. non-existent. And so, so it's like a highlighter, right? It's yeah. just a highlighter. For, it's a highlighter, for but it's uh, yeah. No, I agree that it's ultimately ultimately nothing changes. We're, we're just talking about cause, causes that precede uh, any possible agent's uh, uh, self authorship. Right. And I think that what Tamler keeps trying to say is that there is no point at which we have have actually denied any of that. I think the only question is whether what is the fair distinction to make between somebody who seems responsive to, you know, somebody who seems agentic, for lack of a better word, and, and, and meets all the criteria of intending and and desiring bad things and I think that your your response that they that there is no distinction that is should all just be consequentialist punishment is unsatisfying to me because you are even using that distinction probably when you're designing consequentialist punishments. So you're saying, well, the person who can be deterred by a fine is very different than the person who cannot be deterred by a fine. That is, there are people who are very sensitive to 
to the contingencies in their environment and there are people who are not. And it turns out that, you know, there is some degree in which most humans who are functioning normally are responsive to contingencies in the environment and are responsive to, you know, basic forms of reasoning and persuasion and empathy and all of those things. And all I think is that blame is an emotion that is, that can genuinely drive the desire to find the right kind of punishment for an individual. Um, and, and what I'm not saying is that there aren't cases in which we should think very hard about whether or not that person deserves blame, but rather that the blame is no less justified than any other emotion, like an emotion of love, right? That is, there is no scientific finding that will make me feel less love um, for my partner. And you can say all you want that at the end of the day, this is just for the survival of the species. But but there is a way in which I just simply want to maintain that it is it is what it means to be human to find reason to, to find out why people acted. Did they act in a way that meets the criteria for for agency in some loose sense that could be, I think, as Tamler has argued, culturally variable and and use these emotions in order to to punish i, I think love is the perf- is a perfect analogy right so i love my daughter more than anything and then i read about darwin and i read about kin selection and i find out that my love for her isn't grounded just in my appreciation for the beauty of her character and how funny she is and how intelligent she is and how beautiful she is, but it's actually, this is something that has resulted in the reproduction of uh, mammalian species that care for offspring, right? I find that out. That doesn't undermine my love no, for, for my daughter in, in any way, right? I mean, and, and even if I thought even if I didn't know that, and I thought my love was grounded in something deeper, when I find out that actually, no, that, that you know, there are some mechanisms, biological mechanisms for this, it doesn't undermine the feeling. And in the same way, yeah, yeah. I'm suggesting that— I, I think that, it, it's that, a that, bad analogy. I, it's a bad analogy, okay, and I actually so, I blogged about this. I, on my blog, I have an article, I believe it's entitled Free Will and the Reality of Love. And I think um, it is a bad analogy that—, that our love for others, and again, I think the, the, the link to evolution is irrelevant. The fact that we can tell an evolutionary story about why we have certain cognitive and emotional capacities doesn't tell us anything about their ultimate value or, or whether we should yeah, maintain but them. It's, and not, so, it, it's no more irrelevant than neuroscientific findings, I mean, as, as long as you well, grant that, right? Well, uh, let's just table that for a second. The, the, um, <laughs> I mean, so you know, we, we're not going to talk about uh, the importance of mathematics in evolutionary terms and and I and I we, we ultimately I think are not going to talk about the importance of love in terms of getting what we want out of life in, in evolutionary terms but the, the crucial thing to see from my point of view is that it's a it's a, it's not a good analogy because when we hate someone and 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 blame them in a very deep sense uh, we are doing that on the basis of holding them, causally responsible as agents in the world and that's that's the focus you did this to me 
of your own free will. You could have done otherwise. You should have done otherwise. But you're an evil bastard, and you and you did it. You took pleasure in it. You are the locus wait, wait, wait. of blame. Some, sometimes you're, people you're, are, you're, but I'm not, Sam. Sometimes but, I, but I, I swear to you that I'm not to blame. Right? So you're you're trying to bring in things like hate and belief. No, in, no, well, in, no. Uh, I, I'm talking about. Well, then let's not talk about blame. Let's talk about hate. Okay. There's an asymmetry here, which I think is a very happy one um, to discover, which is. A, if you if you take on my view of free will, which is to say, you know, all of the consequences that I think follow from disavowing libertarian free will, uh, you 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 find no rational basis for hatred, but the basis for love uh, is untouched because love does not focus. I don't love my daughter because I'm focused on her as being the ultimate source of her neurophysiology. Uh, I love my daughter because uh, I want her to be happy. I mean, I, so my commitment to her well-being, I, I want, I want, I want her to be happy. The feeling of loving kindness for her is a connection to her, her happiness, and it's also a valuation of the way I feel in her presence. Neither it's of those him. two things, wanting her to be happy or feeling good in her presence uh, and sharing in her happiness. Uh, but someone not, could say the those exact have, same thing about anything hate. to do with with assessing the causes of uh, the right. ultimate causes but, of her behavior. But all you're saying is that when you love, you are not making the calculation. I don't see how this is any different than your retort that at the end no. of the day, it's just the Big Bang. It's, no, 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 no. Because, the reason that you love your daughter is just the same exact reason that you do anything else. Absolutely not. No, no, no. Because it's it's the no matter how I no matter what I think about causes. This 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 preference for being with my daughter uh, and this preference for her well-being is is unaffected. Whereas if I think of what I have to do to hate somebody is ignore how they became who they are. I hate them for their you know I hate a homophobe because of his beliefs, right? But then when I get more information about how he acquired these beliefs, he had this horrible father who drummed it into him from you know, from the the moment he he could speak that that homosexuals were going to burn in hell and if he became one he would burn in hell too uh and i picture him as that little child on the receiving end of that bigotry and and fear well then i my hatred for him begins to erode i see him as a victim of bad parents you're sort uh, of reifying your claim like right. i i get you're, what you mean but it is not the case unless all you're saying is sam harris descriptively your hate is eroded when you think about causes and your hate is and your love is not eroded when you think about causes. I think that what you know you're probably making a thicker claim than that, which is that it ought to be eroded when you when uh, your hate ought to be eroded or your blame ought to be eroded and because, your love ought not be eroded. And I'm not sure that you've made that case. And and what's not going to make the case is just you you telling me again in these terms. Just to make that clear, uh, as as I keep saying, and as somebody could say, if say somebody harmed their child. Actually, no, Sam. I, I'm I'm glad that you don't hate somebody when you find out that ultimately they're not the author of their actions. But I still hate them, even when I find that out, as long as these other conditions are going to be met. As Dave said, you just reasserting well, okay. that that that, fill, that, fill that hatred that disappears. Fill in that what? blank. What what are those conditions? Specify any of those conditions. The because conditions you agree that with the, in the case of an evil genius. Yes. That the conditions are not met, and right. I think you sort of agree. In the case of a brain tumor, the cases are not met. 
But I've said well, those number, given, a number of times, like yeah, a, like those we keep of, giving you the responsiveness and agency. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. So so you take a but you take a special case of responsiveness to reasons, right? But but in this case, res- the, the person didn't respond to reasons, right? Re- the, the reasoning failed for whatever reason. If you look, well, they closely, responded to a bad reason. So uh, so he the, the person missed the putt, right? Tiger Woods missed the putt. You know, right. the, if you have a, a bad golfer like me, he's going to miss the putt every time or, right. you know, too many times to consider him someone who's responsive to all the variables you need to be responsive to to be a, a, a predictable golfer. But Tiger Woods shouldn't have missed the putt, right? But when we look at why Tiger Woods missed the putt, his agency falls away completely. He, If anyone was supposed to make that putt, it was Tiger Woods. Right, I think I, I think I'm with with Dan Dennett on this. I, I, I this analogy. I think that you're that that what we're talking. I'm so I am so focused on the psychological states that precede a decision to do right or wrong that I'm not sure what this putting analogy. What, right, I mean, it, there are various it, reasons in which we don't have refined control over our motor actions. Okay, Some but you don't have re, but you don't have refined. Forget about the reasons. You don't have refined control over your willpower in the moment. If there were one charge different in your on the crucial synapse that was governing your deciding to drive or not drive drunk, you can't account for why that charge wasn't the way it needed to be for you to resist as you had resisted a hundred times before, which was totally in character for you to do because you're that responsible a person, open to reasons and open to evidence and and easily persuaded. Uh, but here. You just caved in to, to impulse if in a way that is subjectively completely inscrutable to you. If we could spell it out, it will look like cosmic ray bombardment or the actions of an evil genius or the quirk in the, in the, in the ligament that led to Tiger Woods missing his putt, which he never should have missed. And how can that be owned all the way down? It doesn't have to be owned all the way down. And that's that's what I, I guess I keep saying, which is, put, to put it simply this way, is the way that you talk to somebody who seems to be sort of responsive to, to reasons and rational and somewhat intelligent, is the way that you talk to them different than the way that you talk to somebody who is sort of yelling in your face and, and seems well, completely driven? But okay, so all I'm saying is that your different emotions to those two different people and the result of those emotions that give rise to either you calling security or you having a a, a, conver- a good conversation with them, there is no reason to think that there that that ultimate causality forbids you from drawing a distinction in the way that you feel toward people who act in certain ways. Oh yeah, but I've, conce- that- I've conceded that it's just certain. Uh, the question is certain feelings uh, uh, wear off and. Uh, are replaced by a cooler description of what we think is really going on and what we think is ethically normative. That's your assertion. They wear off for you, but they don't wear off for everybody. Well, and if all you're saying is that that we shouldn't hate, that blame shouldn't lead to hating the evildoer, then that's fine. All I mean is that I have, in in some ways, a a different cognitive stance toward, toward these individuals. It's just that this cognitive stance is something that can range from a feeling of mild resentment and annoyance all the way to full blown desire for vengeance. But that, so, and those might, you know, at the extreme, it might be harmful, but I don't think I'm making an error in saying that this person deserves, deserves to be treated 
in this particular way and this person deserves to be treated in this particular way and my emotion is capturing uh, that difference and I almost think that we don't disagree about almost anything other than the nature well, of that I, particular I disagree attitude. with both of you, apparently, about <laughs> the, ver- the value of hatred or, or vengeful feelings in certain kinds of situations. So uh, I'm not, as Dave seems to be, willing to concede e- even those stronger emotions, never mind the sort of weaker dessert-based emotions, but they don't go away necessarily. You can say they go away. You can say well, they dissolve once you find out that all the causal factors that led to the action. I, I don't even I, – I, I guess it's either a moral claim that they should or it's an empirical claim that they do. If it's an empirical claim, then I think it's just obviously false and there's a whole history of counter examples to that if it's a moral claim that's fine then make the claim but um but but well, but it, it can't it's just a claim, be yeah, reasserting it's a claim the claim this this opens on to a, a a wider discussion about what morality is and and i mean in a consequentialist frame, framework i think we ultimately are simply talking about how to maximize human well-being as i say in the moral landscape we have a navigation problem we're just trying to find our way through the space of possible experiences to better experiences and to you know, more reliably avoid uh, needless misery. And and so you know, I think you could make the case that a commitment to vengeance and and an endorsement of the of the, kind of the moral normativity of that feeling uh, and the ultimate blameworthiness of of bad actors. I think it produces more harm than good and, and, and purely on a basis – I mean, one, it's based on – again, I would argue it's based on not paying attention to causality for whatever reason or one, because we just don't have the information or two, we, we, we want to ignore the information because it's just so damn satisfying to, to kill bad people. Um, I think you can just it's, – it's very obvious to see how, how people suffer immensely based on holding to these emotions – uh, whereas if you if if you find a way of cutting through them, the, the the suffering dissipates. I mean, there's one example I'd point to. I think in the moral landscape, where uh, J- Jared Diamond wrote a New Yorker article. Perhaps you guys read it, where yeah, yeah. He, he talked about his uh, it was his uh, father-in-law who was a Holocaust survivor, and um, you know his his he uh, got out of Auschwitz or wherever he whatever concentration camp he was in, and, and learned that his Entire family had been executed in his village, and then he you know, he he was you know with allied forces he he found the person who was responsible you know the neighbor uh, he was like the perfect case of the person who should have known better you know and um, you know this is he had a chance to kill this person with his own hands but he declined you know in the interests of civilization uh, and he he turned this person over to the the authorities and then learned that the authorities just let him go and this person went on to live a happy life you know unpunished. So Jared Diamond's father-in-law spent the rest of his life, I mean, something like 60 years being tortured by guilt. I mean, uh, you know, Jared d- described this as this guy was suffering s- sleepless nights for, you know, more than half a century over this uh, failure to have, have uh, exacted retribution uh, when it was most warranted. And my point is that, you know, if, if he had found out that his – uh, family had been eaten by a grizzly bear or killed by typhus. He would have felt none of those emotions. None of that. There would have been there would have been no no sense in which 
he would have felt this this lingering sense of of personal inadequacy for not having uh, stamped out the cause of of his family's death. But in this case, because he could point to a person who was who seemed perfectly evil and per- perfectly worthy of blame, the le- the rest of his life was given over to 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 misery because of this. And and I think that's I think that is based on a kind of illusion, which if you look more closely at it. Um, would have prevented him this this needless suffering, but I, I would but, grant you it's an absolutely captivating. But uh, but it's not an illusion that bears can't talk and be told not to hurt people. This okay, is what I think. What, I think that you're hinging my claim on the metaphysical truth of this ultimate causality, and I'm only hinging it on a very very real difference between certain kinds of people. That is, oh, yeah. I treat bears differently than I treat human beings, in part because human beings can do things like read books and listen to. You know, yeah, but but, what, what you're, but David, you're privileging the general category difference over these the micro details of the specific instance. So, uh, so yes, the general category of person is someone who's responsive to reason and can read books. Okay, but you take a specific person in a specific moment who is uh, unresponsive to reasons, however well, uncharacteristic of him or her, or you well, take then, a specific person who be- can't read. Right, you know, so I'm reading even my own book. You know, I, I've, this is the most humbling experience I've had in recent memory of just having to read my own audio book. You know, I wrote the damn thing. <laughs> I'm trying to read this in a studio, and there are sentences in that book that I literally cannot get through. I have to change the wording because of I've written some tongue twister in there that on 20 takes. I cannot read the fucking sentence, right? Right. Um, and I got a producer sitting in the you know the, the room, you know, laughing uh, that I can't get through my own sentence. So who's responsible for that? You know, well, so what, I, it, all I agree. I mean, all you're pointing to is that yes, in fact, sometimes the facts matter. And all I'm saying is that sometimes there are people who you know you want you want the details of what gave rise to an action. I'm not saying that that you shouldn't, but on your view, notice that none of these details would matter. That is, it doesn't matter at all whether Tiger Woods is an expert and you're not. It doesn't matter at all whether this person oh, normally no, would be reasons responsible. It does. It does because so, no, you're saying I can't blame any of them. Well, no, but but again, all of the consequentialist different uh, distinctions hold. So, for instance. The, the difference between a voluntary and an involuntary action still holds. I, I, if, if, if the action is right. voluntary, I can punish you and you will stop doing it. Right. It's under your, but, but control. if it doesn't, but if it doesn't matter, Sam, that is, if there is some empirical evidence that in, as a matter of fact, voluntary and involuntary actions, uh, respond perfectly exactly to one kind of punishment. And that punishment just happens to, you know, be you know whatever it's violates some some intuition that we have then you would say then fuck that difference that difference doesn't matter because well, well, no, on the no, basis it's, of it's, consequence that's not true it's, it's different in other respects too i mean but what uh, one d- crucial distinction between a voluntary and involuntary action is that that the the latter doesn't respond to punishment I mean, if you have a tremor in your hand and i start fining you for every time you move your hand you, you the, the the fines are just going to rack up and you're not going to be able to stop moving your hand but but for a voluntary action you can you can stop moving your hand and i can and 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 you won't get fined absolutely absolutely no i i i finally i think that we are in absolute agreement about this and the only difference between i think what i'm saying and what you're saying is that that blame is 
an emotion that is a result of that appraisal. What is the nature of the action that you committed? And I don't have to justify it in any deep sense any more than I have to justify sort of my jealousy or my my shame or my anger or my love. What I have to do is be a, uh, an individual who is constantly trying to be uh, make sure that I have the facts straight, make sure that you really did mean to do it, make sure that I'm really not jealous for no reason, or make sure that I'm not angry and out of control, right? Blame is, to me, no different from any of those other emotions. And, but I mean, I'm opposed can justify to hatred. hatred. Yeah. I think we're talking in circles now, and, I, and we need to wrap up. I think we made because- progress. Well, yeah, no, we've made progress, but I think we're also talking in circles. In and I think Upward the circles. way that if we continue this discussion, where it should go is what Sam was saying earlier. Do emotions like vengeance and hatred contribute ultimately to well-being? If well-being is considered in the broadest possible terms, in more Aristotelian kind of human flourishing kind of terms. Do these emotions contribute on balance, having feelings of hatred, having feelings of vengeance when persons commit certain offenses under certain conditions? Do those emotions, are, are they fitting in the sense that they contribute to human well-being or human f- flourishing considered very broadly? And that's a different argument than the argument that we've been having. I think the argument yeah. that we've been having too much is you trying to convince us that those actions were caused and us trying to convince or at least m- me trying to convince you that I concede that those actions were ultimately caused <laughs> and beyond our control. You see what I'm saying? No, well, I, I think there are two debates. I think I think you are not. I would still say that while you are granting the non-existence of libertarian free will, uh, you are not feeling its consequences as acutely as you could, and you're not seeing how. Well, I'm not feeling the, them you're, as you're you want me to feel them. Well, no, but I, I, you're not seeing how you're vulnerable to more information. I, I think you think you have a principled line between the evil genius case and the brain tumor case. And the case of you driving drunk, I believe that well, the what's moment the basis we spell of out your ability to know what exactly I'm thinking. Well, it's just I, I just I just see that I'm you're not. You're, at the moment we spell out all of the reasons, right? That 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 suddenly make you look right. like a a mere hostage to causality. Then I think you're you're going to be left unable to say why we should really really blame you. Um, in a way that we, uh, we, we, we shouldn't blame you in the evil genius case. I just think because, again, if it's cosmic rays, I mean, when I, when I brought up the cosmic rays, you said, well, I just don't have no reason to think that cosmic rays were involved well, here. But as but though I know, thinking that's cosmic selective rays memory. Were I said two things. I said, I said, A, I have no reason to believe that they were cosmic rays. And B, even if I did think that they were cosmic rays, there's a big part of me that just says, fuck it, I still deserve my beating anyway. So okay. what if it was cosmic rays? But, but that doesn't seem like a, a – the, the, the fuck it, the bridge of fuck it doesn't really seem like a, a philosophically – deep argument i think i think if we actually if we it's, if we get you to, to, to justify the fuck it to me <laughs> i think so i i think maybe we should like <laughs> we should wrap up in the sense that I, there is a whole other discussion here and i think what tamler <clears throat> might be getting at is that there are two ways in which you can say blame and vengeance and maybe even hatred are justified one is whether or not the agent deserves it as an agent and the other right. one is whether or not it actually 
serves a useful role in what in in this sort of general sense that Tamler referred to as as sort of flourishing. And I think that if we got into that conversation, it would turn a lot on. I think I know where Tamler is coming from. In large part, you know, we we agree on this sort of. There is a societal role for these emotions that has served a very useful purpose, and mm. um, and it may not depend on the the sort of freedom of any given agent, but rather on the deterrent of bad things happening. No, it's yeah. not about the deterrent. Well, it's it's not about that. So what I was going to say is is it would get in it, we would probably get into that discussion whether or not this is just a, a a human value that some societies actually hold deeply for good reason or whether or not they it's are It's about just the there virtuousness of those kinds of emotions. That's what right. it's about. Well, well I, I, I guess we, we have do with whether there are deterrents or not or whether that's not that's not the case I I want to make. And I think the dessert case because I don't think there's some sort of metaphysical or platonic fact about dessert like i think that ultimately is a moral claim and when you're talking about moral claims it it does ultimately come down to what i value as, as a human being that's but the, again that's that's, con- that's, con- ultimate- that's the consequentialism you don't want it reduced to I mean, in, in, in well, my view, no. that, that's just Aristotelian, you know, virtue ethics is more consequentialism taken broadly. I mean, we're talking about human flourishing and all of the components that would would lead to it. Consequentialism in, without an impartiality principle. I guess I, I, I would phrase it that way if I had to come up with a slogan. And again, where the ends are are pluralistic. But I do think like uh, there's uh, John Fisher, who's a figure in the free will debate, has a term called a dialectical stalemate. And I do think that we have been bumping up against this on the question of blameworthiness and whether somebody can deserve punishment in the sense that I think you and I might, and and I think, you know, it's not just you, it's a lot of people, and then a lot of other groups of people, just ultimately at their core, at the deepest part of their, of what they value, just have different intuitions about the appropriateness of those kinds of emotions and those kinds of practices. Rational argument can make a little progress and maybe bringing them a little closer, but it, it can't ultimately resolve it. And I know that you disagree with that, but I don't know. If well, anything, I think I, I this guess, conversation I mean, I, might I, be I, evidence of it. The thing that hasn't come out in this conversation, and I agree we, we probably should wrap up, um, and I agree with your description of the, the next conversa- conversation we should have, but I think that the thing that hasn't come out thus far, which is that I, I, I totally understand – how compelling those intuitions can be, and uh, I believe that that what is good in them uh, ultimately can be conserved uh, in a consequentialist framework, uh, and that doesn't and and therefore it, you know we don't lose something that's important to us. So I you know I get that if your if your daughter is raped and killed by a sadistic madman. Uh, you're going to want to kill the guy, and you're very uh, reluctant to give up the feeling of outrage that would make your killing him seem a totally justifiable act of retribution. I get how compelling that scenario is, and I get that anyone who finds himself in that circumstance, it, it may be it may be on consequentialist grounds something we could argue that that you know, allowing 
the victims of crimes to see their 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 malefactors punished uh, is all things considered the best way to to conserve human flourishing. That's an, I mean, that's an empirical possibility. Um, I just think that that again, it, it's that feeling is vulnerable to more information. And 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 once we and again, these are two two conversations. One is just what you know. What what is it? What happens by virtue of having more information about causes? And right. what is you know what how, how how could we maximize human flourishing in light of all of these uh, scenarios? You know where we have information and where we don't. The yeah the 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 progress that we've made is notice noting that those two things are. Are, are different, and I think we we definitely also disagree on what happens when you find out more information. Your empirical prediction is that all of these vindictive, or at least on the extreme end of the vindictive side of the emotions, will dissipate. And my prediction is that for many people and for many cultures now and throughout history, even with that new information, those feelings will be just as strong or at least not attenuated to any large extent. And I think that's well, just yeah. a difference of empirical opinion. Well, I, I would just point point out that it's information we have never had, and even now, I think we can only dimly imagine what it would mean to have it. But the moment it seems that you've granted that essentially we're all robots uh, on some level, and if we imagine it, which is to say, we can't do otherwise than we do. I mean, all of our you know our states are programmed by the universe. And prior prior states of the universe to uh, cause us to think and do exactly what we in fact do in this moment. Well, the moment you grant that, well, then hating a robot seems peculiar because if you had built the robot, you, you to don't be, know my Roomba. My I hate right, that yeah. Roomba. There's no, there's nothing I hate more than that Roomba. I want to shoot that Roomba. I want to get a gun to shoot but, the Roomba. Moreover, you think it contributes to human flourishing? For you feel that <laughs> <Dude>. way? Absolutely. <laughs> Well, that, um, but the, that's an interesting, uh, interesting topic to uh, table for next time. Just whether, because it, in my view, this comes down to a discussion of whether certain kinds of knowledge are actually hostile to the deeper project of maximizing human flourishing. Are there certain things we don't want to know, or at least don't want to focus on, so as to live the best lives possible. And I, th I think that, I mean, this, you know, I, I'm open to argument on this case, whether there's certain things, uh, even if you, gr even if you were to grant me that I'm right, and I'm now not assuming that, but if you were to grant me that I'm right, that too much knowledge of causes erodes a, 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 a vital form of vindictiveness that we want to maintain, um, then I'm open to argument as to whether or not, you know, we want to ignore those causes so that we can be appropriately vindictive in circumstances that where everyone's flourishing is maximized that way. All right. Fair enough. Dave, do you want to know okay. last word on this? Uh, no, I just, I, I think I just want to reiterate that, uh, that I think that, that understanding causes ought to lead us to, to things like less hatred. Um, I just, I, I hope that what we can maintain is a distinction here between a, a particular moral attitude of blame versus all of the horrible things that we might be able to do to somebody that who whom we hate um and that's all i was arguing in particular that minimal little that minimal little notion of justified moral blame that may may not 
hopefully doesn't give rise to hate. Um, but but I agree this is a good place to end because the question of human flourishing is one that, Jesus, I don't even it's know a, where we would start. It's going to require <laughs> another we're, four hours. <laughs> it's going to require the Patriots winning tonight. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, thanks, Sam. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sam. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get at it again if you're willing to undergo this process. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, happy. It's a pleasure to have a civilized conversation, and uh, I'm not so uh, vain to imagine that we have uh, entertained all of our listeners over the course of these <laughs> many hours. But yeah. it, it, for the f- the five listeners we still have left, um, I would say that that I would encourage uh, everyone to uh, support your podcast because I would point out that uh, th- this is a labor that is uh, being done for free by you uh, week after week, and uh, I think it's incredibly useful. And uh, the 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 means you've suggested that they could support you by shopping on Amazon or uh, supporting directly on your website, uh, I would encourage them. To do that, because this is um, we have a problem of uh, of content uh, being created for free uh, now, which we all expect to receive for free online, and uh, it it just uh, the business model that makes this uh, easily done and elegant to support does not yet exist. And uh, so, please support these guys if you like conversations like this. Thanks well, a lot. We Sam. really that's appreciate really, that. That's, yeah, that's really kind. We appreciate it. And uh, and and for the record, I I bought Waking Up on Audible and on iBooks. Um, oh, cool. So I've been tra- I've been trading back and forth. But now that you told me that you read it a little differently, now I'm going to go fucking crazy yeah. trying right. to find <laughs> where that is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, sir. Okay. Talk to Thank you later, you, guys. Sam. Just a very bad wizard.